Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. No greater faction than the action movie scene. Get in the action on the Action Addicts Podcast. Your satisfaction, action on the silver screen. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the show. You're listening to the Action Addicts Podcast, and I'm your host, Scott Wiley. Today, we're going to be talking about Giver, the Dark Hero. I know, I'm not going to do that voice every time I say it. And we're going to be joined today by Matt Essery. Matt has been on the show before. He was on the fantastic episode of Master, where we were talking about Indian cinema. If you haven't listened to that episode, I would highly recommend that you do so. It is one of our most popular, and it is a very, very good one if you want to learn about Indian cinema. And uh, our fun discussion that we actually had on Master. Matt's a fantastic guest. I was very, very happy to have him back on. You will be hearing Matthew, I'm going to say semi-regularly, as one of our guests. He is just such a joy to talk to. He always over-prepares, and... uh, (laughs) and that does lead us to have some fantastic conversations and it's always a good good time so i think you guys are in for a pretty fun conversation guy with the dark hero i don't think was one he was expecting me to ask him to do but he was up to the task and we kind of swap roles in this one as we definitely spend a lot of time talking about the wider brand of tokusatsu and what Giver came from, the origins in Japan, and the various other shows that go hand in hand with something like Giver. Before we actually get into it, though, uh, there is things that I kind of need to address. And when you listen to this, you're going to realize that this was recorded quite a while ago now. Uh, because A, I'm talking about the Batman, and obviously we had the Batman episode last week, so those of you that have listened to both... Yeah, I'm going to be talking about Batman as if I hadn't done an episode on Batman, but don't worry, you won't hear me repeating my thoughts, it's just a, a, a comparison in some scenes. But, because of the fact that Giver is directly related to Power Rangers, Super Sentai, Kamen Rider, Ultraman, all of those sorts of shows, and the fact that we talk about tokusatsu in general... Uh, there is something that has happened that has been in the news that I'm going to have to address. In a couple of points in this episode, I tell a few stories about comparisons to Power Rangers, and there is some information that we talk about to do with stunt people, and uh, someone's name that gets mentioned a few times is Austin St. John's, and it's in relation to other people we're talking about. The stories are still relevant, I'm not going to take them out. But, for those of you who don't know, Austin St. John has currently, at the time of recording this, been arrested and is currently facing charges for wire fraud to do with the PPP program over in America. Now, I don't want to turn into a news-ish podcast. I don't want to start throwing out opinions. However, I will just remind people that currently that is all that anybody really knows. The charges are all there for anybody to go and read. They're not hard to find. And the official response from St. John 
has been exactly what I expected it to be. Basically, that uh, a third party missold what was actually being done in his name. Now, again, he isn't the only person. It's a group of 16 people, and from what I can gather, it sounds like all 16 people were basically talked into doing this by the ringleader, and it wouldn't surprise me if all of them say similar things, because ultimately, the details, you know, we won't know, and we will probably never know, but it is in my experience that people that know what they're talking about when it comes to money, or at least they sound like they know what they're talking about, all they need is for you to say yes, and unfortunately, regardless of what they actually do next, regardless of what they actually tell you to do, how they advise you, you are the one still doing it at the end of the day. That is the same problem that Wesley Snipes had. It's the same problem that people I know in real life have had, where their accountant is the one that lost all their money, but they have their lives wrecked and the accountant just gets to carry on and nothing happens to him. It's just one of those very unfair things that seems to be consistent between both UK and US law. So on that slightly sobering bombshell, I'm going to hand you over to me in the past, who was in a much happier place in regards to talking about this. So uh, me and Matt have a great conversation, and I will see you in the outro, because I'm going to follow up on one thing that I say in the conversation, so be sure that you listen to it, and also I will tell you what's happening next week. Plus, one thing I will also state is that when this episode comes out, there is a very good chance that I will be halfway to Belgium because I'm not going to be here next week. So I hope you guys enjoy it. I will be probably in a car. See you after the jump, guys. All right, thank you very much. You're now here in the conversation, and uh, I have no idea how many weeks ago this was recorded when I did that intro, but you're here now with us in the past, our present, your future. Something like that, I don't know. Anyway, today we're joined once again by my new friend, Matthew Essery. Don't know why I said new. You're not new. You know what I mean. I'm tired. <laughs> Leave me alone. Hi, Matt. How you doing? I'm doing good, Scott. And how are you? I'm doing great. I uh, have been having some fun with the time off that I've been having, and I'm happy to say that I no longer have this goddamn code that stopped me from recording for like two weeks, basically. But uh, I've got so many episodes banked up. Nobody even noticed. <laughs> and yet you had to draw attention to it, you know? Yes, because I've tweeted about it nonstop <laughs> in the vain hope to get sympathy. So give me sympathy, uh, damn it. <laughs> well, I'm always sympathetic to your cause, my friend. I'm always sympathetic. Um, so uh, for anyone who's new, I guess I should introduce myself. Again, as you said, my name is Matthew Esri. I am a film critic. I'm a writer. Uh, I'm a podcaster myself. I've I've written for such websites as Any Cool News, Polygon. Film Combat Syndicate, uh, The Action Elite, uh, Screen Anarchy, and other places. Uh, I've done some things. Uh, I've got my own podcast called called Video Culture, which you can find on uh, iTunes. And really, I'm just here today to talk action movies and talk the Guyver with you, my friend, and I can't wait. Yes, no, I'm a very appreciative of you coming on to talk about Guyver. Guyver is a weird... Well, sorry, I should clarify. <laughs> Not ev everybody already will know this because it's the name of the episode, but we're talking specifically about Guyver Dark Hero, though I suspect we will also mention Guyver, 
but I will struggle to do that because I've never actually watched the first Giver from start to finish. Every time I've tried, <laughs> I've tapped out. I don't know what it is, but I just cannot get into the first film, whereas Dark Hero, I've always liked. Probably, in all honesty, because when I first watched this when I was much younger, I didn't know I was watching a sequel, because the film isn't called Giver 2, it's called Giver Dark Hero. And yes, they talk about stuff that happened before the film, but in all honesty, that's not that unusual. You know, some films just do that, where they set up stuff that happened beforehand. So I didn't think much of it. And then many years later, I was like, oh, there's another guy the film. Well, well, is, good. It's probably why I struggle to watch it, in all honesty. But yeah, sorry, carry on. I was going to say, well, let's get into the hot takes right away. Uh, you did, you're not missing much. Uh, uh, the first Giver is, uh, is um, let me, how, how do I put this? It's, uh, it's not good. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, well, what, what, got, what Giver's got going for it, the original film is, much like Giver 2, it's got beautiful, beautiful uh, practical effects work. The, you know, the monsters, the Giver suit, all that stuff is phenomenal. The problem with the first Giver film is at the last minute, the producers decided they wanted to take this dark, serious manga, this Japanese comic strip about a, a you know a, a robot superhero who fights monsters and, and frankly mangles them like he rips them from limb to limb. They wanted to take this very dark, very violent character and make it into a goofy kids film. Yes. So that's that's the problem with the first Giver. It's it's very much a children's film that happens to be violent in places. And it's, just, it's a real tonal weird mess. And it's interesting. It's got some fun bits in it. Like it's got great, like, like B movie horror actors, like Michael Berryman and, uh, Jeffrey Combs and uh, people like that. And it's, uh, and it, it's got, it also it, has a fairly famous actor in it. Who's whose face oh, and name is on the front cover, making you think I, he's the main character. How did I even forget that Luke Skywalker's in it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause, uh, that's I think is also one of the reasons why when I first tried to watch it, I was very pissed off because that front cover, if you've never seen it, ladies and gentlemen, makes you think that Mark Hamill is the Giver and is the main character. He is not. <laughs> no, no. He's he's kind of like Giver's Commissioner Gordon uh, in a way. And uh, he plays like this hard boiled cop with a terrible mustache. And and I get I get why Hamill wanted to do it. I mean, it's got it's got lots of those things that he likes. It's got it's got, you know, monsters and sci fi stuff. And he's a huge fan of that well i actually remember in an interview that he actually specifically wanted to do it because he was a fan of gyver from his time living in japan oh really that's interesting yeah so he, he was actually familiar with the source material and the material that inspired gyver like ultraman and Kamen rider like he he is a big toku guy um like i i can't remember the name of the show but he did a series i think it was on youtube where he went around and spoke to a lot of like geek geek type people and I remember he did a whole episode on Godzilla. And in that episode, he was talking about the fact that all of the Japanese uh, superhero stuff and the monster stuff, he grew up with all of that because he lived on a military base in Japan. Uh, that's very interesting. I had no idea, but that makes that makes perfect sense. And uh, and I could get why he, why he was into it, man. Because I mean, because I mean, honestly, the monsters and the Giver himself, Especially, especially in the I mean, in the in the manga, in in the anime, in in the live action adaptation, the Giver just looks cool. It is a great design for for a hero character. I mean, it's it's got a great silhouette. It, it's iconic. It's 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 so it's like if Iron Man was a was a sexy kung fu badass. That's the only, the only way I can think of kind of explaining the kind of Giver's whole vibe. 
And yeah. so I, I, I get why he'd be into that. But again, another thing the first Guyver film does really wrong, and we'll get to the we'll get to get to Guyver Two Dark Hero in a second. Guyver One doesn't have good action sequences for some reason. The main action aspect of Guyver One is based around Aikido. Yeah, you heard me right, Aikido, as in Steven Seagal, like wrist locks and throws. Not the most cinematic of martial arts, and it's such an odd choice. That basically equates to Guyver just kind of like hip tossing guys in rubber suits for like the climax of the film and it's just not that it's not that cool it's really not it's it's kind of <laughs> it's it's kind of goofy and uh and and it's already goofy because you got guys in rubber suits and then you got him just kind of gently like tossing people it's not it's not fun really um so so the first guyver um it's full of a lot of juvenile humor uh it's got some some really goofball stuff in it Really, the best thing—the best things about it are just the again the Stephen Wang uh, designs and the Screaming Mad George designs of like the monster sculpt and the Guyver himself. I mean, all that stuff looks great. All that stuff is in Guyver Two Dark Hero. So if you want to check it out and see why I think it's highly of those designs, just watch Guyver Two Dark Hero. You really don't need to see the Guyver at all. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's, it's really it's not terrible, but I wouldn't I wouldn't call it good. And I don't think it's really worth going out of your way to see. No, no, I, I agree. I mean, to be honest, I, I have vague memories of my time trying to watch the first Guyver. And the fact that you've just said that the main martial arts is uh, Aikido just makes me laugh because, no, that does not fit the anime, the manga in any way, shape or form. And good God, trying to perform Aikido wrist locks and rolls and twists in those suits uh, especially the monster suits i'm just like talk about something that just really doesn't fit um that's just that's just making me smile uh also the name of the show uh was uh, mark hamill's pop culture quest it, it ran for a season um and unfortunately i don't know what it aired on but it, it seems to have just been lost to time it's it's there if you google it but it, it just doesn't seem to exist anywhere to watch so it's just one of those things that's just it was there and it, now it's not. But uh, yeah, it, he he definitely has an interest in this sort of stuff. But even even knowing that Jeffrey Combs is who's an actor that I really like, uh, I ain't watching it. <laughs> no, I, I love Jeffrey Combs and I and I like Michael Berryman a lot too. I mean, I've got Michael Berryman's autograph on a Devil's Rejects poster, literally hanging above my computer where I'm sitting. And uh, knowing that I love those two horror actors a great deal, and I'm a big horror movie fan, and I love like you know superhero stuff and martial arts stuff keep all that in mind when i when i say that the first guy film is not good i say that coming from this place where i love all the, all these elements that are in it but still it's not very good yeah um unfortunately the same you know if uh if i can't get into something that is practically tailor-made for my taste um that that kind of signals there's a problem <laughs> indeed my friend indeed so as you uh, so eloquently said, the Guyver one is kind of easy to skip in, in, in many, many ways. So uh, what was your thoughts on Guyver 2 or the Guyver Dark Hero, as this is actually called? Um, it's better. It's still deeply flawed, but uh, but I, but but it's flawed in ways I, I can tolerate much better. And the things I like about it, I really like. Um, it's it, it's it's got um, it's about two hours long. So let's go ahead and get that get that out of the way. It's two hours long, and it should probably be no longer than 90 minutes. Agreed. When I originally was going to sit down and, and watch this, because uh, I, I acquired it on DVD, which is what prompted the, the need for this episode, 
I really wanted to do an episode about it because it will lead in nicely to future episodes, which we'll get into later. But um, I was not expecting a two-hour runtime. I genuinely thought that this was probably going to be 87 minutes. And when I saw the runtime, I was like, what? How? How are you going to... Like, and then, of course, you know, I would love to say that the, the runtime means that there's more cool stuff, but no. No. <laughs> it just, it just no. isn't. No, it, it's it's a very low budget film. The, the, some of the backstory for, for this film was was first one was directed by uh, special effects makeup artist Screaming Mad George and his basically his protege, a guy named Steve Wang. And uh, Steve Wang was really resentful of the fact that the first movie got made into more of a comedy kids film. So when they gave him uh, this, when they took over for the second film, they they basically said, well. Um, I wanted I want to do something darker, more, more adult, and the producer said that's fine. You can do whatever you want. We only we we only have two we only have two limitations we want to put on you. One, it's got to be it's got to come in under a million dollars. We don't want it to cost more than one million dollars. And two, it's got to have at least one monster in it. Besides that, do whatever the hell you want. So uh, so it, it's a, it's a more darker, more mature film. It's not a very it's not a very expensive looking film because uh, I mean the majority of it takes place in the woods. But let's let's back up a little bit and talk about what the Giver is all about. To kind of sum up what the concept of the Giver is for those people people who don't know, it's about this teenager. We'll we'll call him Billy Every Team because his his name his name doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> but but if he basically finds this alien device, and this alien device was was lost by these these group of group of alien human hybrids who walk among us called Zoonoids. They basically have been have been in the world since the beginning of time, brought here by aliens, and these zoonoids are basically like what you think we think of with as werewolves, vampires, that kind of thing. They're basically shape changers. They turn into they go from normal looking people into these like crazy looking monsters. Yeah, and they 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 basically they the reason being that they are our myths and legends. Like every every culture's monsters is actually the zoonoids is what they were going for, right? Which is pretty clever if you think about it. I mean, yeah, I, no, that, that I really a neat like bit of, Yeah, that's a neat bit of mythology. So anyway, they had this. They have this this weapon called the Giver Unit, and it looks sort of like a uh, like some sort of like thing you would put CDs in or something like something you would play like music on, and uh, and they they lose it. in every version of the story they lose it in different ways. Uh, sometimes it's stolen by by a scientist who's rebelling. Sometimes it gets lost in transport. But to make a long story short, and and Billy Everyteen. He finds it in the woods or, or in some like side of the road, picks it up, and this thing basically bonds with him and gives him like biomechanical armor that turns him into the Giver. And the Giver is meant to kind of police and to control the Zoonoids. It's sort of a countermeasure created by the aliens to deal with these creatures that they only shown to Earth. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty good summary. Um it, it's it's not exactly original in inverted commas no. um, that I'm sure many people have other franchises in their heads as you were describing it. But, uh, the, you know, Guyver is, for whatever reason, one that a lot of Americans in particular seem to be very familiar with. I don't know why. Maybe you, you will tell me in a moment. But I, I do find it funny whenever people see this type of hero. Guyver is usually the word that they'll use to describe them as. I actually... Uh, saw it in a in a review of a video game of all things quite recently called Dawn of the Monsters, which is a massive love letter to uh, Godzilla, Ultraman, and various different mecha franchises. And it made me smile because 
the guy in question called the big giant transforming hero both Jet Jaguar and Giver, <laughs> but not Ultraman. And I was like, no, you fool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's because Ultraman was never big in America. Um but 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 in the but in the late eighties, early nineties, when we were when we started getting anime, anime on VHS, we started getting some manga in, in comic book stores. Giver was one of those first ones. I don't know why exactly that was one of the first ones to kind of cross over into America, but, it, but I guess because it was violent, it was a little bit sexy. It had that body horror aspect to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. And I think it's kind of appealed to to the kind of you know the cruder sensibilities of us Americans. But yeah, for some reason, like Ultraman was never a big deal, but Guyver was just one of those early ones, like with Vampire Hunter D or MD Geist or Akira or Pat Labor. Uh, those were kind of, those were some of the ones that, those were kind of like the known anime manga entities in the, in the late eighties, early nineties in America. And those are the ones that people just knew about. You could find like the, the OVA VHS tapes at like Blockbuster and, and stuff like that. So Guyver kind of yeah. warmed its way into the popular culture, and these live-action films certainly help. Because, I mean, I know a lot of people were like me, who liked Ninja Turtles as a kid, and happened to just kind of stumble upon Guyver as it was first released, released on videotape, you know, just a couple of years after the first live-action Ninja Turtles movie. And there's a lot of crossover between kids who would like Ninja Turtles and kids who would respond to that first, like, more kitty Guyver film. But again, I cannot stress enough that the first Guyver film is not worth watching. And I, I can't stress that enough. Um, <laughs> but if there's one thing you take away from this episode, yeah. it's do not go there. <laughs> Life is short, my friends. Life is short. Don't waste it on bad movies. But yeah, so that, that's, that's part of it. I mean, you know, Guyver is just kind of. And again, I think it goes back to the Guyver to just, you know, I know this, this is an audio format, not visual, but the Guyver just looks cool. I mean, it's such a, again, it's such an excellent design. I mean, he's such a cool looking, iconic character. Like from the jump, when you see him, you're like, I don't know what that is, but I want to read that comic book. I want to watch that movie because that guy looks cool. No, I agree. Like me most Japanese manga, it was uh, written and illustrated by one person. And in this case, that was Yoshiki Takaya. And I got to give him all the props in the world. As far as visual design goes, I don't think there's many transforming superheroes that can claim to look as good as Gaiva does, whether it's in the original manga, either of the anime that have been created or in this film. For all the issues I might have had with the film's uh, budget level, I actually thought that they did a very good job with the actual Gaiva suit bar a couple of sequences. Uh, it looks really good. And the fact that it was made for such little money they do a damn good job of hiding it. Some would argue better, perhaps, than some modern films have managed to do. Yeah, it's it's to me, it's always amazing what they were able to get out of these suits in, in this low budget film. Like at one point, there's one of the better scenes in the entire movie is is the Guyver fighting some monsters in, in, in like a creek. They're in like they're in like water, and I just can't think of how yes. hard it must have been to shoot these rubber suits in broad daylight, half submerged in water, and not terrible and not only, and not only does it not look terrible it's one of the best sequences of the entire film it's kind of amazing that it even exists because imagine how hard it'd be to stick like a foam rubber suit in into like natural water and have it not you know completely fall apart right away and and not, and not only not fall apart but still look like what it's supposed to be i know i i don't know how they did that i don't i mean i'm sure uh if i'm 
remembering correctly there i can't think of the guy's name which is you you might tell me but there is a gentleman that is actually writing a book on the uh way in which uh, these films were made yeah let me let me go and give, give a shout out to him that's that's dom o'brien uh d-o-m o'brien with an with an i-e um you can find him on Twitter. He's writing a book called Budget Biomorphs. It should be out hopefully sometime in the next year. It's it, follow him on Twitter. I, I don't have his Twitter handle in front of me, but he's a great follow, especially if you're a fan of of the Giver. Um, it's going to be a great book. It really is. Yeah, I will uh, put his Twitter in the show notes so anyone who's interested can go and follow him. I follow him as well. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to that book. You have actually just reminded me of something. I actually noticed that when I was looking at all of this stuff. Like so many films, The Giver didn't exist in the UK or in Europe. It was called Mutronics, which may also be one of the reasons why Giver doesn't have the same cultural impact here, because anyone who saw that first film, it wouldn't have been under that name. And then Giver Dark Hero, which was called The Giver Dark Hero, was like, oh, so how would anyone know that they're connected unless they'd actually watch both films? (laughs) And, and, And Mutronics is such a terrible name. I mean... Yeah, I think it's to do... I'm trying to think that... that oh, my brain is half working. I, I want to say that there's a reason why it was called that. Like, I think it's to do with some, like, umbrella term that I think was going on at the time, like, um, you know, Biotronics and Mutronics. Like, it, it rings a very faint bell. Like, I do remember the name Mutronics uh, as, as a kid because there were so many of these types of shows, especially in the 90s. I mean, I've got a T-shirt that has all of the American ones or, or the Western ones. And it just makes me laugh so much. Like some of the names of some of these shows, it's like my, my personal favorite is what SSS Gridman was turned yeah. into. Cause it's like, you need to take a deep breath to say superhuman samurai cyber squad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I always hated that they, that they renamed these things for, for Western culture. They always made them so hard to track down or it created so much confusion. Uh, Especially when you got older and you tried to figure out what you watched as a kid. Yep. And uh, so, yeah, the guy definitely suffered from that in a, in a lot of places in the world. But, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it, it still managed, I think, to gain a cult following. I mean, it certainly has a cult following in the action community, which is actually kind of weird when you think about it. Because it's not really the type of film that most action fans, I think, would gravitate towards. Um, but I think it has... Uh, gifted the world probably one of the most iconic kicks in existence, given that yeah. everybody that performs it calls it the Giver kick. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you're right, you're, you're right. It does seem like an odd thing for for action fans to kind of latch on to, but that's because what action it does have is really phenomenal, especially when when you factor in the fact that these guys are wearing like these crazy suits. Like I don't know how I don't know how the stunt performer saw in the Giver costume. Like I mean I can't I don't like it seems like the visibility would be so limited. But yet, the, the, at the end, they have these very intricate fight scenes. They're, they're not long, and there's not a ton of them. But what's there is really high quality. And it's even more astounding, again, because of the limitations of the fact that they're, they're wearing these ridiculous, cumbersome suits. Yeah. And it really, it's almost like, and, uh, you know, I, I, know, I, know, I know you're a big fan of stuff, but it's almost like Power Rangers, but a more adult version of that. And I think that's what a lot of people respond to. But yeah, no, that, that's exactly what I was going to say. Um, Giver Dark Hero tried to go in the direction that I think a lot of people who were involved in Power Rangers wanted that show to eventually go. But unfortunately, 
the two people who basically ran that show, they were like almost kind of okay with you know going more adult, but they didn't want to mess with the money maker. But I think that uh, had Guy the Dark Hero had a bit more money, I think people would have really responded to it, especially at the time. Like you say, the fights were really good. Um, it, it released at that moment when everybody was obsessed with these things and there was like 20 of them all vying for supremacy. But unfortunately, at the same time, you know, I think that also kind of hurt it because there were so many of them. And I think if you saw this like, on a DVD shelf, oh, sorry, a VHS shelf, remembering my time period, um, yeah. you know, people probably would have been like, ah, what do we need to buy that for? I could turn on the television and get like VR Troopers or, you know, Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad or the Tattoo Teenagers of Beverly Hills High or Mass Rider or Beetleborgs or the Mystic Knights of Chernagog. And then, you know, all, none of them are Power Rangers. But, you know, there's just such a saturation of the market once Power Rangers took off. It's true. And, and honestly, you have to kind of you have to kind of sit with Dark Hero a little bit before you realize how great it is. Because I mean, because I mean, like I said, it is flawed, but but the parts that are are good in it are really strong. But they're not ones that necessarily make themselves readily apparent right away. Like there's a scene where the the where the main character and Billy Everyteen is having a nightmare, and he's dreaming about the guy for overtaking him, and it's it's this wonderful bit of stop motion uh film, filmmaking. That looks like something out of Hellraiser as the suit kind of envelops him. And it's really it's more off of how it looked in the manga. Yeah. And it's an, it's a nice little bit of horror filmmaking that's only like about maybe 20 seconds long. But you're like, whoa, that was really intense for this. This kind of what seems like a kind of a, a bit of a trifle of a movie. But as this really nice little dark moment, just kind of right, 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 right in the middle of it. And then you have like these moments where he'll be like fighting a monster and he'll snap the monster's wrist and like blood will shoot everywhere. Yep. And so there's little bits of gore, there's little bits of adultness. And again, just really nice fight choreography. I, I think for me, the what what sells the idea that in my opinion the film kind of loses towards the end is that dream sequence is is amazing. I loved that. Like you said, Hellraiser is exactly what I thought of as well. And I was like, hey, I want more of that. And sadly there is no more of that. But the opening sequence is in a dark warehouse with a bunch of uh, drug dealers, you know, doing your typical criminal element stuff. And then Guyver shows up and basically beats the hell out of him. But he doesn't just beat him up. He's very violent and he's also very lethal. And the bit that I liked that I didn't remember from when I watched it the first time, because it was years ago, is the fact that the Guyver takes control of him and goes on this vigilante rampage because the Giver is, like you said, he polices Zoonoids. Well, they think all the Zoonoids are gone, so they still have this desire to do what they were built to do. And the Giver really struggles with the idea that it can't kill people. And I love the argument that the main character basically has to have with himself. And he's like, no, you can't kill people. And yeah, you ha kind of have that today with Venom. But I much prefer the way that it's done here because he can't actually talk to the Giver. The Giver just does. It has a, a kind of intelligence, but it's not the sort of sentient intelligence that you can make quippy jokes with. It's torturous yeah. for the main character to have to constantly do this every night. And that opening sort of five minutes where you see him kill people and then carve his name in, and he does manage to stop himself 
from going over the edge too much. But I just think if that doesn't clue you into the fact that you're not watching a slightly mature version of Power Rangers, then I don't think you're paying attention. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I also this, I, I always remember that sequence being longer. Like, I, I watched this movie a lot when I was younger, and I had not seen it probably in 20 years until I watched it to, for research for doing this show with you. And I would always remember that sequence being longer and being more of the film. So that was one of my, one of the more disappointing things to me was with the fact that that sequence is only about maybe what, five, six minutes. And then yeah. it switches gears completely. It's funny how your mind kind of, kind of elongates or changes those things around as you remember them. But yeah, you're right. That opening sequence is amazing. It's almost like Tim Burton's Batman, but with like this ultra violent, like manga hero in it instead. And yeah. it, it's very moody. It's very well filmed. But there's this great scene where, where, this bad guy is kind of lurking outside the shadows with his gun, trying to trying to watch for cops. And you see the guy with his eyes light up behind him. It's something that's pure 100% like Batman or Spawn. It's very, very cool. And I, I wish there had been more of that. Yeah, now, again, uh, Spawn was one of the things that I, I, I immediately came to mind. Um, I'm trying to remember what order I watched these things in, but I've seen the newest, The Batman, recently. And I did have to smile because... Like you said, that opening sequence, even though it's, you know, 94, it could have been in the new The Batman film. And I wouldn't have questioned it because they do so much good work with the lighting, having Guyver coming out of the shadows. And like you say, the eyes lighting up. He doesn't look like a hero. He looks like the villain. And, you know, the fact that he's going after other villains, there's a part of me that was going, this is how you're supposed to do an anti-hero, guys. They're not supposed to be these likable quip a minute basically heroes it's like this is what anti-heroes are supposed to be they're supposed to be more terrifying than the bad guys that you're afraid of already like this is why why is this getting it right when so many films are getting it wrong you know yeah and i i think that uh the, those aspects where he talks about him being tortured or kind of are being kind of haunted by the guy for uh, that stuff is really that's some of the strongest stuff in the entire film, and we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that Billy Everyteen and 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 Guy Vertude, our hero, is played by uh by David Hayter. Um, yeah, I, I, I was waiting for that. <laughs> yeah, and for those of you who don't know who David is, uh, you've probably heard his voice more than once if you've ever played a PlayStation game, because he is the voice of uh Solid Snake in the Metal Gear in the, in the Metal Gear Solid series. So he's yes. got a very iconic voice, which you hear occasionally come through in this character. Yes, he played uh, Snake right up until Metal Gear Solid Five when they dumped him for Kiefer Sutherland. But uh, every other game, definitely him. Even characters that aren't Solid Snake uh, are voiced by him, such as Big Boss. <laughs> and we yeah. won't go into so the confusing it... storyline of that game series. No, or the fact that they ditched him for Kiefer Sutherland. I've got opinions about that, but... uh. But yeah, so it's, it's neat to see him as a younger man playing this scene. Because I don't think he's done a lot of live action things that most people would have seen. So this is a nice little thing, chance to get to see him if you're a fan of those games. To actually see his face and see what, what kind of actor he could have been. And he's okay in the film. I mean, he's he's not bad. I will say he's better than uh, than the Billy Everyteen who played in Guyver 1. Uh, really, the, the entire cast, except for like the except for like the, the B-movie guys for the first one, isn't really an upgrade in this film. Because uh, the acting's pretty atrocious in the first movie, and, and and in Dark Hero, it's really just fine. You know, it's not it's not great, it's not great, it's not, but it's not bad either. It just doesn't really draw attention to itself. So, so Billy, uh, every teen, you know, he's 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 fighting bad guys in the city, 
and he sees a news report that there there werewolf sightings uh, in this this remote area in the woods where there's this archaeological dig. So he thinks, well, it's got to be zoonoids. Uh, he's having dreams about zoonoids, having dreams about these weird symbols. So he thinks the guy ever is telling him to go to this to this dig site, this archaeological site, and find out what's going on. So then the movie moves from like an urban film, like a Batman esque film, to taking place almost entirely in the woods. Yeah. Because practically filming in the woods is dirt cheap. <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, we'd love to tell you that there's a better reason, but no, that's that's the reason. And I, I and I think it says a lot that the, the costumes and stuff still look great in like in like the middle of the woods in like broad daylight. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I definitely prefer the sequences that are done at night. But I agree with you. The fact that they still mostly look good in the daylight says a lot about the skill of the people that made the suits. Yeah, and I th- and, I th- and again, I think I think we're doing everyone a disservice if we don't mention why the fight choreography is so good in this film. I, I, not- I was literally just about to say, <laughs> yeah. I, I've just gone back to my notes because I've got several things open to do with the Guyver franchise as a whole. And uh, I've, I've just now returned to my notes and I just wanted to read what I actually wrote because go, I, go ahead. I put the opening segment is amazing. And it also just settled uh, uh, the memory for me. It says, after watching the Batman, I couldn't help but chuckle at how similar this scene is with him literally walking slowly with the sound of his boots and the bullets being shot at him, hardly affecting him. And now I've read that. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Uh, that was funny how similar it was. And then the next thing I wrote was fight sequences were amazing with some great crashes from the stunt guys. Not really that surprising, given that Koichi Sakamoto, who would then go on to be empowering, chose for God knows how many years. The leader of the Alpha Stunts team is the man that did them. And didn't he also do uh, Dragon Rider as well? Am I remembering that correctly? I'm, I'm not a big Taku guy. Uh, so, when you uh, say Dragon Rider, do you mean Dragon Knight? Dragon Knight, thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. Um, uh, You know what? I can't remember. He, uh, Koichi might have come on to do some of Dragon Knight, but I'm pretty sure at that point he was still doing Power Rangers. But Steve Wang did Dragon Knight, which was actually uh, something I was going to mention. Well, that's, that's what I was thinking of, yeah. Because when you when we were saying about the fact that Guy the Dark Hero is a more mature Power Rangers, well, clearly that idea never left Steve Wang's head because, as we've just said, later on in, in uh, 2008, 2009, he would come back to this genre and make a TV show called Kamen Rider Dragon Knight, which is a future episode in and of itself, which is why we're starting here at the beginning. Because Another thing that he did that a lot of action fans like is Drive, which has an actor that is also in Dragon Knight in the form of Mark Dacascos. Yeah, basically, basically Drive wouldn't exist without without Guyver to Dark Hero. You see, yeah. you see a lot of the genesis of Drive in this film. That's why I think it's, it's important if you're an action fan and, and you love Drive from 1997, just to clarify the one with Mark Dacascos, also directed by Steve Wang. Uh, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you pretty much got to see Guyver, Guyver Dark Hero because it is like the it is like the genesis of what they would go on to do. Like those you see those rough sketches of what they would go on to do once they realized what they could do together as a team. Um, it's it's also funny too because when you think about what the storyline for Drive is and the fact that he essentially has this uh, unit inside of him that allows him to do all of these crazy things and move faster and do all this cool fighting it's like he basically has a guy for unit but he just doesn't have the suit <laughs> yeah because again not, not having the suit is cheaper so you always think about it this way there's always ways to cut costs and not lose 
you know, what's important in the story and really what's important in these movies is cool fight scenes. Now, not, not to, not to be too basic or, or, or too like dismissive, but we watch these things for the cool action. Oh, uh, yeah. Sometimes for the cool monsters and, you know, Guybird has that as well, but really we're here for the action and Koichi Sakamoto's action in, in Guybird two is again, especially considering that they're all wearing these ridiculous suits is just phenomenal. Like the, the last fight scene where Guyver squares off against a Zoonoid who's basically put on a Guyver armor himself. So he's like a Guyver is a Guyver Zoonoid hybrid. Um, it's it's phenomenal what they could do considering they're wearing these massive ridiculous costumes. Yeah. No. I mean, um, when you were talking about it earlier, and then and then you mentioned Power Rangers. There's. I was going to to say something. Uh, there's a there's a. You, do you remember the character of Goldar, the the huge guy? Uh, I in do. Gold? Yeah. Yeah. There's whenever people think of him, they 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 think of this big lumbering oaf, which he was for most of the show. But in the early episodes, he would often get his hands dirty, and some of the stuff that the stunt guys were able to do in his suit, and I don't mean the Japanese footage, because all that stuff is always amazing. I mean, those guys have been doing it for decades by that point. But there's American shot stuff, and they're pulling off like roundhouse kicks, and they're doing these massive jumps. And I know for a fact, because I've, you know, I've seen the documentaries with stunt people. I mean, most of them went on to bigger and better things. But they, like you said, they, they couldn't see anything. They were just doing it purely from timing and praying that the other guy's timing was going to be as good as theirs. And yeah. When you think about that, the fact that they are still this good, it just blows my mind because I'm sure Guyver was exactly the same. I mean, the advantage, of course, with having Koichi Sakamoto's team is that they already had experience of doing this sort of stuff from their time in Japan anyway. So I'm sure for them, it was kind of like, ah, yeah, this is just business as usual. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, the, vis- the visibility in, in those in this mask said to be so limited. But you're right. It's all purely timing and just, just just hoping that your partner has the timing down too. Because it'd be so easy to screw up or accidentally smack you, the guy you're you're doing the choreography with, and it's just it's not. And it looks intricate. It, it doesn't look clunky. It doesn't look awkward. It, it's not really cut up to make it work through editing. They really just pull off these little short bursts of very intricate choreography in these very restrictive you know costumes. And when people want to dismiss this stuff as hokey. Or, or juvenile or or not really very well made i always try to keep in mind that no this stuff is exquisitely made because think about how hard it would be from a practical level to do it and so that's what so many people who want to shit on these kind of films don't think about they don't think about how hard it would actually be to put on a ridiculous costume and throw some spin kicks mm-hmm. and have it not look like garbage and not, not only not only not look like garbage but look amazing i mean to me, it's I can't fathom it really. Like I'm, I'm trying to even process how that would work, and I'm, I'm my mind just can't do it. Yeah, no, I mean, th- look, there's a there's a thing on. I'm trying to remember where where I read it, but ultimately it doesn't matter. But there was a thing a long time ago where, not so much these days because you know the the world that we live in now is different. The MCU came along, and superheroes became what cool people liked and being a geek in inverted commas started to become an identity that people were allowed to have. Well, grandma, this was back in 1990s. That was still very much not the thing. And for a very long time, the people that were involved in stuff like this, like you said, David Hayter's prime example, he didn't 
do this film and then go off and do a bunch of other films. Like this is like one of the only live action roles he's ever had. And the cast of Power Rangers did not go off and do dozens of other things, despite being on the number one kids show throughout the world. Uh, however, the people that did the stunts, they had a completely different experience in their careers. Like, I don't think there's a single person that was a genuine stunt man or stunt woman that if they have Power Rangers on their CV or they have any kind of tokusatsu on their CV, they get jobs because people see that and they know that these guys are probably some of the best in the business. Like, if you can do this stuff with 60 pounds worth of, you know, suit on you and you could do this stuff in temperatures and weather that is not really ideal even if you were allowed to wear really loose clothing and you could still make it look good, then yeah, you might not be working on the, you know, X amount of hundreds of million dollar movies, but you will be within a couple of years. And most of them are, you know, most of the people that made this stuff back then, they make all the big stuff now. And it's just crazy. It's the same uh, principle that I think of with uh, Thunderbirds. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that show, but obviously it's a, it's a puppet show. And the people that made the special effects for Thunderbirds back in the day, they went straight from the set of Thunderbirds to the set on MGM's James Bond films and never looked back and became some of the biggest names in the business. And it's the same for Power Rangers, you know, stunt guys, action coordinators and directors that work on Power Rangers, you know, well, we know you can do the work, mate, because, you know, you've done it for 60 episodes and you call that a season. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and to me, that's that's and once you can look at it that way, when when you when you can look at it with an appreciative eye, you start being more forgiving of the things that don't necessarily work. Like, yes, there's a lot of pointless melodrama in Guyver Dark Hero. There's a there's a lot of flat acting, but overall, it just doesn't matter that much. No, and to be honest, I agree with you on the melodrama, but I also think that's kind of par for the course when you're adapting an anime. Um, I think some of that stuff just doesn't translate well when you try and uh, bring it over to the West. Some of it just works better if it's done in Japanese in an anime form. Um, I think the second you try and bring it into live action, it just highlights how some of it, you just wouldn't do it in real life, but it works in the tone of the story. I, like, for example, I love the fact that this guy, like we said, he goes to the woods. It just made me smile so much because he gets there. And then when he gets there, He's like, oh, I need to, I need to go onto this archaeological dig site, and it's like, okay, why? Uh and then he's like, so you you traveled for hours to get to this place, maybe days, I don't know. And at no point did you think somebody might go, okay, but why should we let you into this privately owned facility? Uh I don't have a reason. I just need to be here. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I laughed so hard at that. Bit. <laughs> You see, Scott. You see, Scott. It's because he's very handsome, and, and the female archaeologist is a very attractive woman, and that's just how things work in these kind of things, you know. Yes, I did find that funny when they first meet. She actually does almost look like, well, not an archaeologist, but she kind of looks like a tomb raider. If you wanna, <laughs> if you wanna go there, and uh, I, I did make a note that the more this film goes on, the less archaeologist she looks, and it's <laughs> like. Uh, her hair comes down. She starts wearing dresses that it's like, hang on. She's still working on a dig site. I don't know where, why you think she'd be ruining all of her nice clothes like this, you know? <laughs> yeah. She's got to impress Billy every team. Yeah. Yes. Although yeah. I did have to chuckle uh, that the, the way that they get him into the dig site for the people listening is 
she basically uh convinces everybody that he's a scientist that turned up late and an archaeologist uh and that just made me laugh because a he has a line that's similar to the effect of because i'm something of a scientist myself <laughs> and this this just just made me laugh so much because i couldn't obviously not think of green goblin but also i'm not an archaeologist but i'm pretty sure that it's a speciality that takes many many years of training and getting a doctorate in order to pronounce yourself an archaeologist and this guy just basically walks in and goes yeah i'm an archaeologist and then they're like okay cool well you can come and help me dig out this ancient fossil and he just does like it's the easiest thing on the planet (laughs) and he's like oh yeah no problem i know how to do this and starts like brushing off the fossils and i'm like ah i think that needed a bit more of an explanation but you know what i don't care but it just made me laugh so much that they were like, yeah. yeah, you don't need all that training. You know, you can just learn it on the job. <laughs> yeah, there was enough plot. Scott, let's be honest. We didn't need to have, you know, 10 more minutes of him convincing people he was an archaeologist. No, uh, but it just made me yeah. laugh the way that yeah. they were just like, yeah, cool. We don't <laughs> need to see ID. We don't need proof. We're just like, yeah, cool. Go with it. <laughs> it's the same as like, um, I don't know if you noticed it or whether this was just me, but uh, every time. Uh, someone called, and I'm going to just call him David Hater because, again, I can't remember the dude's actual name. Billy, whatever, every man. Every time someone called his name, especially when it was um the girl, he didn't just, like, turn around or casually glance up. He, like, full 180 degrees spun around very dramatically and, like, the camera zoomed in, like, on a Brookheimer lens. And I was kind of yeah. like, you don't need to do that for every time he turns around. <laughs> they do and it's just yeah. so funny yeah it's just it's that that, that that in a lot of ways that's kind of that's kind of a stephen wang sort of thing like it's got a little bit of that hong kong excess flourish to it but it's it's almost gone it's almost an overdrive in this film like, i mean the camera's a little too active at times a little too flashy but, but you know it was his first film it was his first directorial effort where he was solely in charge you can tell that he really stephen wang really wanted to make to make a film he really wanted to show people what he could do so there's still there's just a lot of what I would call excessiveness to uh to Guyver Dark Hero. Yeah. No, no, that's a good way of putting it. It really was a I wouldn't necessarily say it was like his training grounds, but I definitely think, you know, like you said at the very beginning, he had freedom to basically do whatever he wanted. So he did. <laughs> and and yeah. so not all of it worked. Some of it he would refine, but it was basically him just going, I have carp lunch to do what i like so i think this will look cool and it's not until you see it that you're kind of like ah that didn't look as cool as i thought it would in my head but you know within a couple films we'll get it right you know yeah but but again for everything that doesn't work there's something that does like there's the scene where again the dream sequence where it's like it's like hellraiser or like when he's running in the woods and he turns into the guy for mid stride uh that's that's very cool or when he or when uh or when the character jumps off the cliff and turns into guy for mid fall and then he lands and makes a crater in the ground I mean, that's all really inventive, impressive stuff for what is such a very, very inexpensive movie. No, I agree. I mean, to be honest, when I watched the film before I knew that it was a really cheap film. I mean, I know it was a lower budget film, but uh, I think I, I looked it up and I'll say it in the intro unless you know it now anyway. But um, when I actually looked it up, it was kind of like, wow, like there's no way that majority of people could make any kind of film for that amount of money that looks this good um yeah, it, 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 it was it was under a million dollars i mean yeah um, yeah 
No, no, not counting not counting marketing and all that stuff, but I mean, the actual production budget was under one million, which is crazy. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how they made the suits and some of the sets, in all honesty, because yeah, all right, you could argue that that maybe they don't stand up so well today, but like skipping ahead a bit, the interior for the cave and the ship. They're amazing, considering, like you say, that there's less than a million dollars being spent here in combination with the suits and the fairly big cast for, again, the size production that it was. And I, I don't know how they managed to, like, really stretch the, the dollars. <laughs> the, the only thing I can figure is that Steve was Steven, Steve Wang was a special effects guy. He was a sculptor and a prosthetics guy. So I figured he must have made a lot of this stuff himself or had his friends make it. It's only the way I could figure that he got some of this stuff made under budget. Because you're right, the alien ship interior alone, I mean, sure, it looks dated now. But I mean, if you think about the fact that it's actually something they can walk around in, it's a real three-dimensional space. It, yeah. had, to, it had to be expensive. So I, I imagine he probably called in a lot of favors to get that done. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that probably makes sense in all honesty. Um yeah, it, it 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 must have been done through favors, which again is a good way to do it. That alien ship to me, although like you say, some of it is dated, I still thought it was really good. I mean, not to only compare this film to its contemporaries, but to be frank, I bought this alien spaceship more than I did the alien spaceship in the 2017 reboot of Power Rangers. So that's kind of saying something when it's a real set made by someone that's actually good at sculpting. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it looks even. I mean, honestly, I want to say it's dated. I, I mean, I really it. If you compare it to like our, today's world where, where everything's green screen or blue screen or or a CGI created rendered environment, it look it looks good because it's tactile and you can tell it's the space they're actually walking around in. Yeah, and you know, there's actually something for the actors to react to, which I think gets underestimated a lot uh, you can have really fine quality actors and i think it's a lot better these days because people have you know come up with solutions for that but especially like early green screen cgi films the actors are just staring off into space because they don't know where things are that they're going to be reacting to and even though this is a low budget film you don't have any of that because regardless of if you're a fan of rubber suit monsters or practical effects of this kind the fact that they are actually there means that all of the actors regardless of how skilled they are as actors they at least have something to go off of they're not just imagining it with their minds and having no clue you know yeah exactly and and even the rubber suit stuff even though some of it is goofy or cumbersome even that stuff is exquisitely made like i mean the eyes of the suits move so they can have like 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 eye reactions and they can see them like looking around and that's stuff that, that you know they had to do with it with animatronics and that stuff is not easy to do i mean that's true like robotics and craftsmanship and some of the kind of stuff you see much now anymore because nowadays it would just be well and we'll just cgi that and uh one thing that's really nice about the guyver films in general is that there's a real handmade tactile quality to the series i mean this stuff looks impressive i mean Sure, I mean the, the, they may be not good movies, are are slow or or a little bit dated, but you can't deny the craftsmanship. No, I I mean I agree. I mean I I've always been a fan of these types of films, uh, whether they're American or or Japanese made, because 
I, I, oh, when was this? This was during the first lockdown that we had in the UK. I went through and basically rewatched all of the 90s, 2000s Godzilla films because I had plenty of time. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and the, you know, some stuff was dated, but a lot of stuff was so creative because they couldn't just spend money and CGI it. They had to come up with practical solutions, whether it be creative camera angles, um, practical diorama set designs, or, you know, the, the, the way in which people move in the suits and the suits themselves. Something that I've noticed as time has gone on is there used to be much more of an effort with suit designs to make them not look like suits, as in they would hide the 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 joints the lines the zips and you know if they were supposed to look like metal they would put uh, paint effects and textures onto them to make them look like metal and then sound effects would be put in to give you the illusion that they're metal and i've noticed that if you compare them to a lot of their modern day versions they don't always use cgi but the cgi never looks that great when they do but even when they do the practical stuff now it's so blatantly obvious that it's a suit and they don't seem to put anywhere near as much care into hiding the fact it's a suit into worrying about whether or not you can see that it's rubber bouncing. And especially in Guyver, barring a couple of uh, bits, they kind of do care. You know, the Guyver, they make a great effort to make it sound like it's a machine mm -hmm. uh, and it's powering up, it's metallic, it's this foreign alien substance. And the monsters have their own weird sometimes sound effects that go with them to make them not feel human. They're zoonoids, they're aliens. And like you say, that craftsmanship takes time and they might not have had the same budget that other films of the day did, but they clearly had a passion and they wanted to make the best version of this that they could make with the limited resources that they had. Yeah. And I think, I think that craft deal, like, like you said, is, is, is very much, dying out because it's really got such a heavy reliance on computer graphics now you don't have you don't have artists like screaming mad george or steve wang around that much I mean, there are still some out there but they're not nearly as there's not there aren't nearly as many as there were and that's really sad because again there's always something that's that's more pleasing to the eye about things that actually exist things that, you, that feel tactile and you're never going to quite get that with CGI. I mean, it's all, CGI is always going to have a little bit of, a, of, an of an uncanny valley quality to it. You're always going to kind of know somewhere in the back of your, of your lizard brain that that is not actually there. But when you look at something like the Guyver suit or the monsters in this film, you can't help but be impressed by them because you can tell they're actually there. They occupy a real 3D space. They have weight. And sure, the, you know, the, the way they're painted, the way they're shot, the side effects that are laid over, over top of the scenery that adds to like the believability of it, but still in the back of your brain, in the primitive part of your mind, it looks good because you know, it actually exists. Yeah, no, I, I a hundred percent agree. Um, it's funny because, uh, the next set of notes I've got are about the next fight in the film where they're like, they think that the camp thinks it's under attack by a bear. And obviously it's not a bear. It's another zoonoid. Um, and I, and I, I love the fact that they got very gory with that photographer that, that the zoonoid kills. 
Um, I also made a note that the screeching cat noise that it made whenever it roared was uh, not so much appreciated. That was the only thing that I felt didn't quite work for me. <laughs> um, but going alongside the suits, like we were talking about the action, I actually uh, made a point of saying, you know, it's easy to see where modern fight scenes were going. Um, and by modern, I mean today's, because that the fight in the woods that he has at night with that zoonoid, there's so much, uh, the way it was filmed, the high-octane, speedy choreography, and the kicks especially, they don't feel like they were made in the 90s. It feels like it was ripped out of how fight scenes would go mid-2000s onwards, even to this day. And a lot of that, like you say, has to do with the fact that they had Sakamoto's Alpha Stunts team, that they had Steve Wang, but they also had complete freedom to try new things. And they brought over the way that they were already doing things. And especially at that time, Asia was still doing action far better than the West was. You know, um, 94, Hong Kong was still had a few hits left in it. And, you know, we didn't yet have, we hadn't yet, sorry, brought over the directors and the stunt teams that would give us some amazing films. And this was in a world before the Matrix, which obviously yeah. changed everything. And it's just so funny that so many films from the 90s get credited as, oh, this was the film that should, that changed everything. And yeah, it was because it was bigger. But when you watch something like Dark Hero, there were already people heading in that direction. There were already people that were doing this before the big names came along and did it. And it's just so funny to go back and watch something that feels so much like a modern era film. But then you look at the release date and you're like, hang on, what? And I, I don't find that hard to believe because obviously me and you are from that era, but I do find it funny when someone who's not familiar with this stuff, you know, if you put this in front of someone younger, would they, what would their reaction be? You know, it's like, oh, it's pretty normal. It's like, yeah, but it was made in 1994. What? You know, I, yeah. I feel like that, that would be the reaction you'd get because there's so much stuff that a lot of superhero films took that well i don't say they took from this but you know what i mean it's like it feels like they did whether it was intentional or not i have no idea but it really feels like there's a lot of blueprints here that were kind of ignored for a long time and then somebody somewhere was like actually i think we can we can do that <laughs> well it, it's like it's like any movement whether you're talking about movies or, or musical scenes you know um there's never one defining moment where like okay here's where punk became a thing here's where grunge became a thing Here's where hip hop became a thing. There's not really a moment where Hong Kong cinema or the Hong Kong Asian style of action became like the way to do it. It's sort of trickled in slowly. And before, before you knew it, 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 it was the prevailing action style. But, uh, but if you go back, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily because of hard target that that happened or because of, of the Western release to rumble in the Bronx. I mean, those are the ones that popularized it and kind of set it into overdrive. But you had you had guys like Sakamoto doing again Guyver two. You had uh, you had uh, t and, and and Tony Long's you know Blood Moon and Super Fights. You know they, they super, uh, Blood Moon with Gary Daniels. That's a very Hong Kong film before Hong Kong movies were popular. You had those seasonal films like No Retreat, No Surrender. These are things were starting to kind of trickle into America slowly. But it wasn't until it got seen on, on a big level with things like Hard Target that the kind of the Asian style of action, that kind of high octane go for broke, you know, madman action cinema became a thing was it, it, 
it didn't really blow up until it had a big platform that your average person saw. But it was slowly coming in. And Guyver 2 is one of those forebears of that. One of the first things to really try to bring it in slowly. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, sorry, you mentioning um, Koichi then actually just reminded me that um, we mentioned Dragon Knight earlier and then I never actually got back to you. Um, but no, Koichi didn't work on uh, Dragon Knight. Dragon Knight was was actually done by uh, Akihiro Noguchi, who's more commonly referred to as Yuji. And uh, he also works on Power Rangers. I'm actually 99% confident uh, that he... See, I don't want to say this and be wrong, but I'm going to say it. And then if I am wrong, I'm sure people will correct me. But I'm 99% confident he was actually the original choreographer for Mighty Morphin. Like he did the auditions because uh, there's a there's a fairly famous story. If you know uh, Austin St. John, his audition, he had to do a fight scene. And I'm pretty sure he had to do a fight with Yuji in front of uh, executives. And uh, he accidentally roundhouse kicked Yuji right in the face, like full power. And Yuji got back up and they carried on the fight scene and uh, Austin was terrified of this guy. But I know that he, at the time, was like the one that a lot of executives went to. And it's like, if you go on his IMDb page, you know, he, he did the stunts on Kate quite recently. He worked on Hellraiser and then there's just legions upon legions of Power Rangers stuff. And yeah, you could, it, it's pretty obvious, like I said, that these guys, everybody just did really well. Oh, there you go. Apparently he worked on Ninja. <laughs> and black belt so yeah the list of people that did amazing stuff goes on and on and on <laughs> yeah and i mean i'm not let's say i'm not much of a toku guy so i appreciate you i appreciate you clarifying that because that's one that's one area I've, i honestly don't know a great deal about because 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 when power rangers became big i was very much already watching hong kong films and because i was a teenager and a bit of a snob i never really gave power rangers a chance and uh, so that's a cultural phenomenon that really completely missed, completely missed me when I was growing up. So I, I appreciate the clarification. It, you know, it's funny, actually. Um, there's another guy on YouTube. You might be familiar with him called James Rolfe. He has a channel called Cinemasca, mm -hmm. but yeah, the, the yeah. angry video game nerd. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, he actually di did uh, a couple of videos on Power Rangers that I actually think is uh, a really good representation of what you just said because again i think he's sort of around uh your age maybe a couple years younger i'm not entirely sure but um he uh he he was the same as you he 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 wasn't the right age for power rangers it passed him by but he was also a massive godzilla fan and he decided to basically watch the show now uh because you know he'd seen it on and off and he was like when i turned it on as a kid there uh, sorry as a teenager that there were these giant monster sequences and it was everything that I loved. And it's like, hang on a minute. I had to import this stuff from Japan. And you're telling me that the most popular show on TV right now for kids is literally giving me all the stuff that I am importing from Japan. Why am I not just watching the show? <laughs> and uh, he, he made, a, you know, same thing. Like it just completely passed him by because he was, you know, older and everybody that was of a certain age was made fun of if they watched it. And unfortunately, if you turned it on and you just saw the kids being kids or teenagers, then yeah, there was nothing there for you, really. It was aimed at a much lower age group. But once it cut to the Japanese footage, nah, it's, it's worth watching in inverted commas. And 
it's so funny, like you say, when you see people go back and really dissect it and rewatch it like he did, like he really went into the weeds. I think he got really like uh, obsessed with it for like a couple of weeks and he came out the other side and he was like, yeah, don't watch it. <laughs> because <laughs> if you've seen like one or two episodes with maybe a few storyline exceptions, you've seen every episode, Like the formula is exactly the same, which is its biggest problem and its biggest strength. But like, to, to circle back to Guyver, I think that had Guyver been able to continue, because the, you know they definitely set this up for more more than just this one film. I mean, there was stuff being alluded to, and we find out that the Zoanoids are very much not gone. Like you know, they just got better at hiding. Um, I feel like there would have been room for Power Rangers to be, you know, the kid entry level. And then you'd have another franchise that was for slightly older. I mean, there were dozens to pick from back then. And then you had something like Guyver that still didn't really deviate from the formula of there's a monster in a suit and there's another guy in his own suit and they fight each other and one blows up. But it's all about in the execution and the tone and Guyver would have been perfect for that older, mature audience because in Japan, it's not quite like this, but the way a lot of the fan base thinks of it is the... Power Rangers equivalent Super Sentai is for kids. Then you put, go slightly older and you've got Kamen Rider. And then you've got even older, which would be like Ultraman. Now, that sometimes varies. And unfortunately, especially the modern stuff, that's not really true anymore. Every season kind of varies its tone. But for a while, you really had this nice progression of the older you get, there's a show for you. It's still the sort of stuff you like watching but it's got maybe a bit more of a mature theme, maybe some blood, maybe some violence, maybe some melodrama, but you don't really have that in the West. It's like all just got that blanket of, this looks like a kid's show, be gone, you know? And yeah. I think a lot of people will do that to Guyver, even though, as you said, there's blood, there's gore, there's a lot of blood and gore, actually. <laughs> well, it's it's funny because even even in the manga and, and, and the original OVA anime, there's even a bit of hentai stuff in it. I mean, because they, they, they imply in, in, in the manga and the anime that the suit is technically, uh, I'm trying to give a way to say this politely without being crude, but the, that the suit is kind of inserting itself into, into the wearer. Um, and I mean that in like the kind of hentai sort of way. And it's, I, I, I was watching the OVA to kind of again prep for this and i was like wait a minute what's happening now what's going on and but sure enough th th there's a scene in the ova where where a woman puts on a guyver a guyver armor she finds and it totally becomes like a hentai anime for like 20 seconds and i'm like what in the fuck is happening right now um but then uh, but then that scene goes over and she's just in the guyver costume but it definitely had a moment where it sexualized the entire process and i was like that is wild i mean like the fact that this even exists blew my mind because I mean you don't think about it it's something that's because again the first movie first guy really I've actually film is a very much a kids film the second one's very much a uh, kind of an angsty teenager film but the original source material is very violent it's very sexual and it's just I think there's a lot you could do with it but uh, it's it's definitely not for kids and uh, I think I think neither movie quite does it the, the original source material justice because I think there's 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 stuff you can mine there for a whole new franchise like you know because the big thing now is like shin godzilla shin ultraman shin common rider i i think a shin guyver would be pretty fucking cool yeah yeah i mean in all honesty it actually surprises me like 
Guyver is a weird franchise because again, it's not in my brain, it's not one of the big ones because being a Toku guy, I'm familiar with all of the big ones. I'm not going to lie and say that I'm a master of them by any stretch of the imagination. My knowledge of Ultraman is actually very, very small. I've always been a Kamen Rider guy of a very specific time period. I don't really watch it anymore. Um, not for any other real reason than time, but it's one of those things where if they were to make, like you say, they're doing these Shin films and I don't really know what they're going to do with Ultraman and Kamen Rider. And I'll be honest, I still haven't seen Shin Godzilla. I'm actually planning to rectify that this week because some friends are doing a podcast episode on it and I want to listen to it. But Guyver is a weird one because it's never actually had a full, complete start to finish adaptation of its source material. Both animes that were made for it didn't actually finish. They they adapted to mm-hmm. a point and then just stopped. I don't know if that was because of viewing ratings or what, but um, Guyver could probably get away with just having a new anime that actually finishes its story because especially these days, I mean, they've done a Gridman anime. Uh, there's a Netflix Ultraman anime, which adapts the modern Ultraman manga, which is different from the original Ultraman manga. And the way that, you know, anime has changed, I would prefer it if it was done in the style of the 80s. I think that's a pretty common thing, but ultimately because of budgets and time, that's just not possible anymore. But if they were to do a new version of Guyver, I still think anime is the best way to go because there's already so many live action transforming heroes that I think Guyver just doesn't have a place because it's trying to compete with the people that have been there for decades. Like, you know, people talk about Batman and Superman. And yes, they're older than all of those franchises I just mentioned, but for the Japanese market, Ultraman, Kamen Rider, those two are, you know, they're so old. They're right there with the Godzillas. You know, they're, they're mm-hmm. black and white in Ultraman's case, not Kamen Riders, but it's, it's such a, a, a weird idea to think that Guyver, um, doesn't have a place when, like you say, for America, it was one of the first ones. And it's funny because, I often think the same thing of uh, Dragon Ball because it being an early anime that came over, same with Gundam. Uh, all right, Gundam was very popular, as was Dragon Ball in Japan, which is obviously why it came over. But how much of these animes and these shows' popularities is because they are that good, or is it just simply the fact that they were the ones that got westernized first? You know, it's like, yeah. why? It, how much of that is the reason for their popularity, uh, given you know how many anime and manga there are that come out of Japan? You know, especially back then, you only got a fraction of what was actually out there. It's just such a weird thought, you know. Yeah, and to me, I, and I, I was going to mention that too because I mean, I, to, I think it's just that the fact that that the Guyver has endured is mostly it's endured in the West. Like people, it's not so much that people even like them, like the manga or like the animes or like these films. Just the guy, again, goes back to the back to that most important thing is the guy just looks cool, and the, the guy is kind of it's got it's got a fun name. It's easy to remember. Uh, so, so it's got it's got it's got it's got a fun name. It's got a cool design, and it was one of those early anime things, anime properties in the West. I think that is solely the reason it's endured. I think that's solely why it's kind of in ingrained itself in like nerd consciousness in the west because it was first and it's simple and cool yeah no it's it's uh 
it's funny because I remember um, Jason Narvey, he, he made a point of saying like, you know, when someone was saying about, oh, I can't remember what it was, but so, someone asked him a question and he was like, well, you know, Power Rangers isn't exactly original. He said, you know, I used to watch Voltron. And it, it's funny because, again, you're dealing with stuff that has traveled between countries and, you know, stuff that gets adapted doesn't necessarily travel when it was originally made. And I see a lot of people do this with Giver and Voltron and Power Rangers and, and Tokyo shows of various things where they often try and argue like one is better than the other. And it's like, well, that's irrelevant. But when you start arguing about what came first, a lot of the time, the thing that you think came first didn't actually come first. Not at all, you, yeah. And, and yeah, it's just like just. Like you say, it's it's all about what were you exposed to as a child? What were you exposed to first? What was your first experience? Like, for example, for me, I watched Mass Rider as a kid, which was the American adaptation of Kamen Rider Black RX, the Japanese show. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. The American show, do not watch that. It is It is not worth watching. And I'm saying that as someone that watched it as a kid. If you're not a kid, there is nothing there for you. Just go and track down the Japanese show. It's easy enough these days. It's been subtitled by many fans, and I'm pretty sure you can buy it on Blu-ray, uh, or you could at some point. I don't know if they're still in stock. But the actual Japanese show that first got me to actually start watching this properly was Kamen Rider uh, Kabuto. Now, I love that show because it's the one that got me, but... Everyone in the fandom has a different show that they'll defend to the death as that you know the the best show, and all the other shows should be like them. And nine times out of ten, if you dig into someone's arguments enough, it boils down to well, it's the one I watched first. So it's like, yeah, there you go. That's the reason that you like it so much. It's got nothing yeah. to do with everything else you're saying. All all good points, but mostly it's the one that you watched first. So that's how you judge everything else by. Yeah, and that's that's always interesting to me because it's funny because as you were, as you're talking, I was trying to rack my brain about thinking what was my first exposure to like rubber suit monster fighting besides Godzilla, like not kind of Godzilla. What was my first exposure? And I think it legitimately may have been Guyver Dark Hero. I think that may have been the first time I ever saw this, and like and I uh, and I I had not quite discovered Hong Kong film yet, so it was it was it was kind of real close together. But it but it was enough where it imprinted on me where I, I appreciated the crazy action sequences. I like I like the monsters, and but it kind of set the idea for me for what I thought was cool about the visuals and the way the fights are, and uh, and again I I never, I never really dug deeper into it because I very quickly after that discovered Hong Kong film and that became a whole wormhole that I've dedicated so much of my life to. Um, but yeah, I think I think invariably fondness we have for these things, especially things that, that are older. Is so much based on what we saw when we were young and what we were first exposed to. Because I always talk about that. My first exposure to martial arts film, films was not Bruce Lee. It was not Chuck Norris. It was no it was no retreat, no surrender, which was directed by a Hong Kong guy. So that kind of kinetic Hong Kong style of action is always how I think action films should look in a way. So I have to kind of grapple with that every time I, I watch an action film to not judge it against that kind of innate desire I have for everything to kind of be kind of a, a kind of Hong Kong style action sequence because my first exposure to real action, real quality action was very Hong Kong flavored. And that colors you throughout your entire perception of everything that comes after it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I have, I always say to people, 
I think this is the first time I'm saying this on the show, actually, but I, I remember saying this to Mike ages ago, like when we first started talking and uh, he was, I, I can't remember what the film was, but it, it must have been a Scott Adkins film. But he, he basically was saying, you know, it's a good film, but it's very low budget, like color your expectations. And I, I just responded with, May I grew up on Power Rangers. It's <laughs> got to be real bad for me to care <laughs> about the budget. <laughs> and it's true. Like you said, if uh, what you grow up on is how you'll judge other stuff by. And I know there's tons of stuff that critics love to tear apart and say, you know, it's not this, it's not that. And then I watch it and I'm like, oh, it's not going to win awards, but I don't think it's bad. I've seen far worse. And it's it's like you say, it's if you get used to something, uh, that's how you'll judge everything else by. I mean, my dad and I used to watch Doctor Who and the special effects in that are atrocious. I'm talking about the original stuff, not mm -hmm. the not the new stuff. And yeah, like, like Tom Baker and shit. I got you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Tom Baker specifically was his favorite doctor. And mm -hmm. uh, some of that stuff I can still watch and enjoy, even though it's it's awful. But it's it's a different mindset you've got to get into because one thing I hate uh, with a passion and we might have said this the last time we spoke I can't remember but is people watch old stuff but judge them as if it was made today and that drives me insane because you can't do that you can't look at a show made in the 70s on a shoestring budget by the BBC in a time when they didn't have money which is not really much different from now but mm. point being you can't watch a, a, a shot of a model-like village, complain that it's a model village, then see a bunch of people in quite obvious rubber suit monsters and be annoyed that they don't look that good because you're judging something that is literally made before you were born and it, it you're comparing it to something now that probably had a budget of $500 million and going, oh, it's not as good. And it's like, no shit, Sherlock, you know? Yeah. And and those people to me are often embarrassed by the things they actually like. Like if like if you ever dig in and talk to those people who do that, they've got things that they like that they, they will defend that, that are equally not as good or, or equally chintzy or or you know slow budget. They just they 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 have blinders on for it. They don't think about that because it's what they like. Um, like a lot of these critics who will who will trash things. If you if you go and ask them how they feel about certain things, like they usually have some soft spot in, in, in their background. Like they may love horror movies. They may be big slasher fans or they may love like, like, like horror monster films. Like they may be big fans of like demons or ghoulies or, or critters or some of those more ridiculous, like early horror films from like the eighties and late eighties or early seventies. Um, and so um, everyone's got biases basically. And to me, one thing I have to do when you watch films and especially when you go back and watch older films is you have to learn your biases and try to push past them. To try to take things on their own merit, try to look at the time in which they were made, the, 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 the difficulties that the crews had with making them, and try to appreciate it just for what it is in the context of when it was made and how it was made and who made it. And some critics can't do that, and that's why, and I'm going to go out and throw another hot take here that's going to, might give me trouble, but most critics are terrible. Because, a lot, uh, because most critics really have trouble doing that. They have trouble just taking things on their on their own merit. They'll praise things that are entirely within their own bias on the things that they that they like. But if anything's outside of that bias, that may be equally as well crafted or poorly crafted. They may be harder on because it's not interesting that's in their their wheelhouse or their personal realm of enjoyment. 
You see it all the time. We, we, and we have friends in our in our circle who do that, who who are published critics, who are who have their own podcasts, who will, who will be harder on some things that are no worse or better than things that they love, simply because the thing that they're being hard on is not in their personal realm of enjoyment. Oh no, a hundred percent. Myself and Mike have have spoken to this at length. Uh, ah, what was the film? That oh, doesn't matter. But. You know, I, I rated it four stars uh, at the exact same I rated something else. And it's like, well, it's you can't look at two four star ratings and immediately think that they're equal. You have to rate each film individually on a degree of difficulty. Like you said, you can't compare a low budget action film, uh, you know, like, like say one of uh, Jesse Johnston's films, for example. It, a lot of his stuff is really good. But again, you can't see me give deck collectors two four stars and then compare it to i don't know a four four and a half star rating for avengers infinity war and go hang on they're nothing alike it's like yes they're nothing alike so you can't compare them there's no point in breaking this down and like you said so many people struggle with that and my own hot take here incoming i agree with you that people will um review stuff with their own personal biases and their own subjective opinions because i don't actually think it's possible not to and i think people that say that they can do that are often not telling the truth because everyone has had a different life experience that has led them up to the point of when they write a review when they watch a film whatever it is that they're doing and your experiences affect your opinion on the thing that you are looking at and judging and that's what you're doing as a critic you're judging it and i think that if you're the guy that is sat there going i don't like action films and then someone chucks an action film at you and says review this because we need it done i don't know why so many people are then surprised that their review is i didn't like it and i thought it was made badly well do you like action films no well then i'm not surprised and I see that so often when you just think, why yeah. did you review it then? And I know the answer is sometimes you don't get a choice. I get that. It's a job. But it just makes me smile. And it's like people put so much stock into what people say. And I always say, you know, this is my opinion. I can review something, but ultimately it's my opinion. I can trash a film very easily, I might add, sometimes, which is why I don't do it very often because I get carried away. But I can also really praise a film. But that doesn't mean that the film is perfect. And it doesn't mean that just because I really love something that someone else will. My friend Anisha and I both went and saw James Gunn's The Suicide Squad. And I'm happy to say I love that film. I really highly rated it. She liked it, but she didn't love it. And as time's gone on, she's gone off it. Uh, because, you know, time passed. You think of things differently. And she's decided that it wasn't for her. I still really like it. I've watched it more than two or three times. And I know a lot of people didn't like that film. But that doesn't bother me. Like, I don't care. It's cool. You know, everyone can like yeah. dislike what they like. Yeah, you have to have your own opinion. So that's what makes life interesting. And I think as someone who does who does write who does write uh, critiques for money, what I always try to do is I always try to be very open about my biases. Uh, I always try to be very open about my, about my predilections and the things I like and don't like in a review. Like, I'll even say this is not necessarily for me. But here's what I thought about it as objectively as I can. But I'll be very clear that I may not be the target audience for this particular thing I'm talking yes. about. And, and that's all you can do. You just try to be honest and be fair. 
And so, so many, so many YouTube critics, so many podcast critics, so many Twitter critics really struggle with that. And we've really gone off in the weeds <laughs> right now. But uh, the weeds is where we live. But really, well, I, I like to talk. What can I say? Uh, but, uh, but so, and that comes back to the idea of when you watch something like Guyver Dark Hero, you, you've got to just, you've got to try to take it for what it is. And it, if you come at it with an open mind and a fresh perspective and a little bit of patience, I mean, it's not, it's not the most amazing film you're ever going to see, but there's enough great craftsmanship, interesting ideas, and truly just love of movie making in it that you're going to find things you like about it and things that you appreciate. Um, and I think that's why it's worth watching because I mean, there's there's enough there's enough nuggets of gold in it to worth that that makes it worth sifting through. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, the action sequences, the fights are quite frankly some of the best in the genre and for the year that this was made i would very much struggle to find another film that could compete with it and the monster suits look great but when they're not doing the stunt work and they've got close-ups the animatronics on some of them is really good still to this day i think they hold up and it really depresses me that as you said this craft is well i would say dying but in all honesty it's dead um you know there, there's there really isn't yeah. anything of this anywhere left and it's such a shame because this has its own appeal this does have its own charm and it's such a shame that i know that there will never be another film like this even if tomorrow i woke up and somebody just said we're gonna do another guyver it would just be an iron man uh ripoff like unfortunately the 2017 power rangers film basically was and yeah every every hero now that tr that has any kind of transforming armor is forever going to live in the shadow of the mcu iron man especially given that as time went on he basically turned into a transforming hero because the nanotech basically made him like a guyver or or like a a, a yeah. common rider esque type hero and the lines between the tokusatsu type of hero and your regular western type of hero really blurred as special effects was able to catch up and do the more fantastical elements from comic books because yeah there are western heroes especially nowadays in comic books that that can go on that uh wavelength of Japanese heroes and boom, uh, not boom studios. Uh, I can't think of the label, but there is even now a big creative push to do these independent heroes. And a lot of them have a very Japanese flair. Um, Kyle Higgins created his own transforming superhero and that in turn inspired other people to make their own. And, uh, not too long ago, they announced that all of those heroes were going to cross over. And they 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 weren't connected beforehand, but now they are. They're building their own little universe over there. But they all take inspiration from Asian superheroes, not Western superheroes. But I just know that if they were to ever get popular enough to get something in live action, all of that Japanese influence would go out the door, and it would turn into an yeah. American-made film. And the thing that I really like watching Guyver is it is an American-made film, but it feels different. It feels fresh, which is daft because it's 30 years old. But it, it it's a style of film that kind of never got going. Like, it was kind of shot 
before it actually made it out the door. Yeah, it's it's because it's it's just it's unabashedly weird and it's unabashedly its own thing. Um, see, if they, if they were gonna redo, if they were gonna do the Giver nowadays, you're right, it would be more of a generic Iron Man or Power Rangers clone because they wouldn't let it be ultra violent. They wouldn't let it have like lone wolf and cub type blood sprays. They wouldn't have like the guy ever just committing hate crimes on these zoonoids, just like beating them down mercilessly. That wouldn't happen. It would be, it would be sanitized. It'd be made, it would be made so much less weird. It would be scrubbed of anything that makes it peculiar. And honestly, the, the peculiar, the peculiar stuff is what is what makes it fun and interesting. Yes. It certainly wouldn't have any hentai elements. Let's put it that way. No, it would not. And, uh, and so, and the, to me, that's, and that's all, all, all that weird, uh, mixture of stuff, all, all that weird kind of thing that goes into like the, the stew that is Giver and the, and the stew that is a lot of, of these more Japanese creations. That's what makes it interesting. That's what gets it the flavor. That's, that's why we sought out these things in the beginning because they were different than what we were watching. And now because the MCU has become so ubiquitous, you know, the, those little quirks and those little weird details are even more important now than they ever were because that's all we have to differentiate this stuff from, from what's the most popular entertainment in the world, which is the MCU. I mean, at this point, it is the weird flourishes that make Guyver different than, say, Iron Man or any of those other characters. You need that weirdness. You need those little weird details to make it yeah. matter. Um, I know because uh, we were talking before the, the recording, you, you haven't heard it yet. So I'm just going to give you a, a recap to make this bit make sense. But uh, my guest in the Mortal Kombat episode of this show, uh, and for anyone who hasn't listened to that, who's listening to this, uh, he made a point trying to adapt... Uh, something as complex as Mortal Kombat's lore into a single film is a fool's errand. And I agree with him. Some things do fit the MCU mold. And we actually made a pretty interesting case for why Mortal Kombat should go the MCU route of having multiple films in a shared universe to build up to the Mortal Kombat. But because, like you say, it is the most popular form of entertainment, I'm now doing the reverse and saying that not everything needs that. Yes, some franchises do fit that mold and they can still do their own thing. Just because they have a shared universe doesn't mean that they have to copy everything from the MCU. Mortal Kombat is violent, it's gory, it's bloody. It will never work if you try and sanitize it and clean it and the people making it know that. It's part of its package appeal. You can't take the blood and gore out of Mortal Kombat because that's called Street Fighter. There already is a version of Mortal Kombat without the blood and gore. But... Giver, because like you say, it's never been that successful. It is in people's brains, but it's never had that big push into the mainstream. No one would keep it the way it was. It would just get changed to fit the mold of what executives think would make them the most money. And unfortunately, that basically means stripping it of its identity and going in another direction. Yeah, and and like like we saw with the cautionary tale of the first Skyver film, where they tried to make it into it into more of a children's film, it doesn't work because again, it's got to be weird, it's got to be mean, it's got to be quirky and peculiar. I mean, because that's the flavor, that's what makes this stuff interesting. And, it, and if if you don't have the elements that make it interesting, then it's not going to appeal to anyone. Because at least something like Mortal Kombat twenty uh, twenty one, and I know that we all use that as like a constant reference point, but I can't think of any other other film that we were also anticipating 
that was still so kind of weird, but yet still so disappointing. So it feels like a good touch tone to use as a reference. So bear with me. Um, so even even though they changed some things with the Mortal Kombat 2021 film, the reason it did get some good reviews and has some positivity was because it kept a lot. It kept a lot of the fatalities, which a lot of the horror fans responded to. And I think that's proof that you have to keep some of the weirdness. You have to keep some of the of the luridness of the stuff to have it appeal to audiences. If you try to if you try to make everything into like again Iron Man or the MCU or Spider Man, it's just not going to work. I mean, to me, that's like DC. DC stuff when they when they tried to copy what Marvel was doing, failed miserably. But the minute DC started doing their own weird takes on things, they're you know just uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League, you know um, Aquaman, um, Joker, and the Batman. Those kind of weird, more creative-driven, singular vision films, those have caught on and been successful because they're allowing those weird flourishes to kind of flavor the product. It's not its not this mainstream, you know, McDonald's product that is the MCU. And don't get me wrong, I like the MCU. I like Iron Man. I like Spider-Man. I've seen all those films multiple times. But it's so ubiquitous and so ever-present that you have to have things that deviate from that. And that's why I think shows like yours are so important because it reminds people that action films, this popular entertainment medium of action films, has a lot of unique flavors in it that we really should go out there and try to seek out and explore. Yes, yes. It, it's funny. Uh, I don't think it was intentional, but it, yes, we. I, I'm currently um, also watching uh, Star Trek Picard. And when you said we should go out, seek out and explore, a part of my brain couldn't help but go, Yes, action fans boldly go where no action fan has gone before. <laughs> you nerd. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's, it's, it's like I guess I mean my, my point of that rant is, and like we've been saying, what makes what makes Guyver interesting, what makes Guyver two especially interesting, is just it's the weird flourishes, and that's like the flaws are what make things beautiful. And in Guyver two, despite being a very flawed film, still has a lot of beauty in it. Yes, and uh, for those listening who are regular listeners, typically speaking, not in every episode, but we do tend to go through the whole film and kind of break it down, or at the very least talk about it. But as you might have picked up from what we were saying, there really isn't that much to talk about that yeah, isn't a fight scene. Yeah, we we kind of did, really. He goes to the camp, he he, he digs around in this, this, this archaeological dig, they find some alien artifacts, zoonoids, zoonoids pop up. And he beats them down with, with hate crimes, basically. Like, <laughs> like, like he is a zoonoid racist. He he uh he just he just curb stomps them all. It's really quite awful. I mean, in fairness, uh, there is a scene where the zoonoids try to pretend to be misunderstood uh, victims in all of this, yeah. but they do a pretty clear job of demonstrating that, uh, like you, you you're referring to it as a hate crime. They were more than happy to wipe out all of the humans once the humans had uh, served their purpose and their whole speech about being uh, victims was wrong. And, you know, they're, they're very much villains. Yes, his solution is to wipe them all out. And, you know, who doesn't love good old genocide? But ultimately, that's, that's, the, that's the Power Ranger way. <laughs> you, don't, you don't talk with the monsters. You blow them the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it goes back to the we have to we always have to kind of grapple with the idea that that these are all kind of all, all these stories have a little bit of a fascist undertone to them, a little bit of a of a might makes right quality, and you just kind of kind of accept that and, and and brush it off because that's inherent to the genre. 
these movies would not be fun if the guy ever sat down and talked about his problems with his own and they worked out a peaceful solution. But we're not watching this for like peaceful negotiations. We want to see that. We want to see the guy ever. We want to see the Power Rangers. We want to see Batman. We want to see those characters beat down the bad guys because that's that's what's fun. And it doesn't have to be any deeper than that. You know, it's like that quote from from Tarantino where the interviewer asks him why his films are so violent. He goes, because they're so much fun. Yeah. And that's really it. I mean, action is meant to be fun. And, and you can analyze it. You, you can you can pick it apart. Like I, I said, I hate crimes jokingly because he really does so violently kill these things. Um, oh, really, 100%. Yeah, but really, I, I, I love it. <laughs> yeah, but really, it's just, it's just it's just poking fun at the absurdity of it all, and uh, because it's all absurd, it's all silly, and it's just meant to entertain. And uh, and sure, and and you could write, you know, dissertations on, on like the deeper meaning of these things. God knows, I have like some of my bread and butter is picking apart like meanings and symbolism behind action films. But in the end, it's just so much fun. Yeah. Um... I genuinely do find it funny when people try to look into the deeper meanings of things. I do it too. Obviously, I think I think everybody's guilty of it a little bit. Um, and sometimes, like you say, if you're paid to do it, it's what you're there for. But I do find it funny when people then take that uh, deeper meanings and then try to ask the creators about it. And like you say, Tarantino ain't alone. I mean, the amount of creators, directors, producers that when they're asked about it, it's like, I think you thought about this more than I did. I just saw yeah. something that looked cool, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I've interviewed, I've interviewed a lot of writers and directors. I, and I, and I'll sometimes get, I'll sometimes get in my film critic mindset and I'll be like, so your films have a lot of this sort of theme to, can you explain why your films have this recurring theme of like isolation or anger or, you know, that kind of, that kind of highfalutin critic nonsense that all film critics love. And nine times out of 10, the, the person I'm interviewing will go, huh i never really thought of it that way i never put that kind of thought into it that's literally what they say you know yeah almost yeah. every time but um just just going back to what you were saying a minute ago about the the film the one thing that um i really liked because it's not something you see very often in power ranger-esque shows is in the film you actually get a monster versus monster fight because one of the zoonoids doesn't want to kill all the humans because and this bit was a bit unclear but again if you read into the story too much it's it's a waste of time but his daughter is human which makes zero sense but we'll go yeah. with it um and he like doesn't want to disappoint her like he was on board with the plan because you didn't think there would be any violence and then he you know brutally defends her and then other people in the camp like his colleagues because he's shocking twist revealed he was the head archaeologist which i'll be honest i kind of predicted but then i couldn't work out how that meant that she wasn't a zoonoid but the film just smartly answers that by not addressing it and moving the yeah. fuck on um yeah. <laughs> is you know you don't want you don't want to think about billy every teen having sex with a zoonoid you don't you don't want that you don't want that thought in your head you you don't want that to occur to you, you know. No. You don't want hot guy for own zoonoid action. He, that's the last thing you want. So we're just gonna hand wave that. Don't don't worry about it. And uh, the other thing I really liked is in the the final final uh, showdown of the film, we essentially get Dark Giver, which is hilarious because the film is called Dark Hero, but we get the evil Giver because there's another Giver unit. It's cracked. The armor's black. 
and it merges with a zoonoid so it looks like a monstrous version of the main character and we get the traditional good guy monster versus bad guy monster uh, and i it's really like that standard stuff compared to the you know the monster that's repenting in inverted commas or at the very least doesn't want to you know wants to defend his door which is an understandable motivation but i really liked the that fight between the two guyvers and how they beat them by overloading the unit so like you say there was a bit of brain power it wasn't just our guyver was bigger and stronger and as you said the monsters that he took out beforehand he was very violent with them like he beheads one he breaks the wrists of one like that one uh he just completely dismembers practically like he just beats it up like that's that's not so much a a, a fight as it was just a beat down <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and to me, to me, uh, the excessive, uh, the excessiveness of the violence is part of what makes it unique. But you're right, the the fight at the end with with the with the Giver Zoenoid. First of all, the Giver Zoenoid looks really cool. You're right, it's it's a really cool design. He's got he's got the he's got the he's got the the Wolverine like claws in his elbows. You know, he's all black. It's just it's, again, what makes movies work? Movies like this live and die on how cool the monsters look, and. uh and the Giver and, and and the Giver Zoenoid, the Dark Giver, both look incredibly cool. Like I would love to have toys of both of them. Like I, I'm a grown man; I don't collect toys. Uh, I don't even really collect models, but I would love to have like some poseable like Giver and Giver Zoenoid mo- toys to have like on my desk at work. You know? Yeah. Like that's that's how that's how cool they look. Yeah. No, I agree. The Giver designs in the film because there's actually three Givers in the film, but. You know the um, the, oh yeah, the, the other... primitive guy from from the flashback, yeah, yeah. Um, that one you only see for a few seconds, but it does actually have a, a different design to both of the other guyvers. So I can't help but wonder if when they were, you know, because like I said, they they tease a lot of stuff in the peripheries that they could go to other films with. I I do wonder if that that uh, armor was going to be utilized in a future film because. Obviously, as you said, the anime, there is more than one Giver. In the mm-hmm. manga, there's more than one Giver. So there is definitely uh, room for multiple Givers to, you know, it doesn't just have to be our, our Billy Everyman. We could have uh, Jane Every Woman, you know? You know, it's a shame that they, they didn't make more of these, but I often love movies like this that have, that have just enough detail to let your imagination kind of run wild. Like, sure, it's, 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 it's sad there never was a Giver 3 or a Giver 4. But I kind of love that there's this one movie that's got all these little details in it that you can just kind of imagine what would come next, or, or it lets you kind of fill in the gaps around the story. I kind of I kind of dig that because that's really something that's been lost in our world, where everything is a shared universe movie with with four or five sequels. You know, yeah. I, I miss I miss the idea of just letting your imagination run wild with this stuff. But yeah, no, I agree. Um, it is nice, you know. Even even in this low budget film, I also really like the fact that, like you say, they put so much effort um, into this. And I gotta commend to the stuntmen that were in those Giver suits. Like at the end, like that end fight is crazy. There's all sorts of stuff happening. I mean, there's a Liu Kang bicycle kick straight out yeah. of Mortal Kombat that's better than the one in Mortal Kombat. There's the actual Giver kick that Scott Adkins has performed to death in much more modern movies. And then you have basically every character in the film gets to have a little moment against one of the bad guys. 
um the government agent the captain dude gets to kill a monster pretty much you know single-handedly the girl uh gets to do something of interest and then guyver gets to show off his energy weapons which that makes me think we we never talked about his his, his titty lasers yeah that's that's what i, I was just gonna yeah. say like he has that big massive finishing move as well as the lasers in his head which made me laugh because he it's kind of like Iron Man's missiles in his shoulders that he uses to save hostages. Yeah. Like, Guyver could do that at any point, but he just doesn't. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like the Voltron sword. Why doesn't he do that just at the beginning and get it over with? Yeah. But yeah, one thing that, and I, again, because it's such a goofy little detail, but uh, but I kind of love that, like, the Guyver's main weapon is built into his chest, and he has to kind of pull open his top to fire it. So it looks, it it's like he's flashing his, his, his man tits at whatever animal, whatever enemy he's fighting. And hits him with this laser. It's kind of like the, it's kind of the silliest visual of him like pulling his top top of him like it's a brawl, and he's flashing someone, and this giant laser comes out. It makes me laugh every time. But it's it's the most unheroic gesture in the world. But it's got his massive power behind it. So yeah, it, uh, it never fails to make me smile. And, he, and it's and it's in the anime. It's in, it's in the manga. It's in the movies. Uh, yeah, I I love Guyver's tit laser. It's just such a fun, weird little detail. Yeah, and I love how it happens too, because you get uh, Corey saves uh, a Sean. That's the guy's name, Billy Everyman is Sean. Uh, <laughs> I, did, I wrote it down somewhere. It doesn't um, matter, Scott. I know it doesn't matter. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just reading my notes. And, I appreciate uh, your preparation. <laughs> but I like the fact that they had Corey save him, because uh, again, you know, she spends a portion of this film as a damsel which I'm fine with. Like, I don't need every single female character to be strong, powerful, independent and not need of saving. But the fact that they did that and then had her kind of have enough of this shit and just actually get involved and start fighting, I thought was a nice arc for her to go on. But I, I, the main reason I'm saying this is because I love the fact that uh, Billy gets a one-liner because obviously the evil Guyver has this stolen unit, it's cracked, it's glitching, it's not perfect, and it's, you know, not working great. And I just love the fact that when they're talking about the fact that the bad guy's like, I'm the model that's going to replace you, and then the one-liner that our Guyver finishes it on is, this model has been recalled. And that's <laughs> such a 90s one-liner, man. It just made me smile so much when he said yeah. it, and then proceeds to just atomize him with his white light of... Uh, flashing power <laughs> yeah that's the the arnold schwarzenegger the arnold schwarzenegger zinger that's something that's definitely gone away in modern action films and i wish that would come back i i i love the you're fired or that kind of stuff you know this there's like ridiculous like action era things they would say before icing a bad guy that's, that's a fun little trope i wish would re i wish would return oh, Just a little bit of silliness yeah but uh I I also love the twist. Uh, again, it doesn't go anywhere because we didn't get any more films. But I love the twist that everything he'd been saying to the Zoanoid was wrong about the information he got from the ship. And basically, again, for those listening who haven't seen it or don't remember, when they when he gets the information from the ship's computer beamed into his Guyver Core's computer, he actually discovers that humans were the experiment that the aliens originally created and that basically humans were just purely created by them to be their Guyver warriors to fight the Zoanoids. And uh, I love that twist. Like, the Zoanoids aren't the experiment that the aliens brought to Earth. We are. And I, I think that's such a cool sci-fi thing 
And like you say, there's so much unique flavor to the Guyver universe that they could do have done or still do so much stuff with it. And yeah, on a surface level, it has a lot of similarities with other properties, but the the more mature setting, the violence, the sci-fi element, and these little twists in the lore of the world, you could make such a different thing to what has been done before. And I can see why they wanted to make this film. It's just a shame it didn't do well enough for them to do more, because I'm sure that Steve Wang and Koichi could have made some amazing sequel to this, you know? Yeah, I mean, to me, one of the great tragedies of, of, of action cinema is that Steve Wang didn't make but he, he didn't make more movies after drive you know he had he had he had, he had bad experiences with the release of dark of dark hero he had bad experiences with the release of drive and he just gave up making films to me that's one of the tr- real tragedies of action cinema fandom is that that's all we got from steve wang and his one film he did in between kung fu rascals but those just those three films really are, are all we have of steve wang and he was such a unique voice in action cinema and i would have loved to see what he could have done after making Drive, what he could have done if he got back and done a guy for three, it would all be learned from Drive. Like imagine if he had gotten the Mark DeCascus in Guyver Three, what we could have gotten with that. You know, just it could have been it could have been so much more than what it was. And uh, just a real shame. But as far as the Guyver in general, I'm surprised that the Guyver hasn't been optioned for something new nowadays. It's got a little bit of name recognition, it's got that cool design. I'm surprised it hasn't been picked up for, for, for a new anime or, or, an, or a new series or a movie, just something. Cause you think there's, it's got, it's got potential. It's got the kind of potential there to be something like that. It could be a franchise if someone was just willing to go with it and really embrace it. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I don't know if it's a licensing issue, if it's the creator, you know, who owns it just doesn't want to do it. Um, or maybe it's simply the fact that people just, it's not in the cultural mindset of Japan. And I guess because from most people's point of view, it had an OVA, it had uh, another anime that was done in the 2000s, and it had two feature films, both of which failed. So maybe most people's attitudes is that well just isn't going to ever, you know, produce gold, which is ultimately all they want from it, you know? Yeah, well, and, the, and it, it had anime before the 2001, too. So it actually had two animes that didn't do very well. Um, because, and it's just kind of the guy of a curse, I think. Uh, despite having all these things that could work for it, it's just never, it's never gotten, it's never gotten the kind of budget or the kind of uh, effort it deserved outside of just, you know, the obvious, lo- the obvious love that Steve Wang put into it. Uh, I think Steve Wang loved the Giver more than than anyone but the actual creator of the Giver. But everyone else just kind of like the animes are are not great. They're both cheaply animated, uh, and and then they're both incomplete because I guess they weren't very successful. But it's not. But the Giver, I guess, because I mean, I I enjoy it enough to think that it it deserves another shot. But if you look at it objectively, it's had plenty of opportunities to catch on with pop culture. And outside of nostalgia for guys like you and me, it never really took hold. You're right. So, I mean, who's to say, man? I mean, I guess I guess if it was going to die out, at least we got this one really interesting, weird movie out of it. Yeah. And I think ultimately, 
the fact that people still talk about it and it still has managed to hold a cult following, even if it doesn't necessarily uh, hold the biggest following, people still know about it, even if they don't know that they know about it. Every time somebody watches Scott Adkins do a Giver kick, every time uh, people see a transforming hero, although this character, this film especially, might not have the biggest following, it did indirectly and directly influence so many productions that would come after it, both in and out of the genre, that I, you know, you can't honestly say that this film didn't affect uh movies going forward even if like you say many people didn't see it but the people that worked on it did go on to do other things um so at the end of the day it still did leave its mark even if it wasn't the mark that people hoped it would be <laughs> yeah and i mean and it did influence people i mean there are people like us who've gone on to make films like just last year there was the the horror comedy psycho gorman which yes. was directly influenced by Guyver 2. Like I, I interviewed the, the writer director of that, and he specifically said, I'm a huge fan of Guyver 2 and Steve Wang, and I wanted to, to do something like that. And a character in that movie does the Guyver kick. And it's not an action movie, it's a horror comedy, but it's got DNA of the Guyver in it. And like the Guyver would not look out of place if it just wandered into that movie, you know? Um, yeah. So, and you know what? At the end of the day, Steve Wang, Koichi Sakamoto, they're still around. Who knows what the future holds? That would be really weird if it happens. But in this day and age, with nostalgia being the way it is, maybe there is enough, just enough of a pull for there to be another guy for in the future. You never know, man. You never know. I mean, and uh, like I said, your Steve Wang is still is still sculpt. He's still sculpting. He mostly does like high price maquettes for 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 like collectible outlets now. Like he like you know those expensive like seven hundred dollar statues of like monsters that that the really rich geeks buy he makes those so yeah. he's still he's obviously still working on his craft he's still out there doing stuff he's done interviews recently like justin decoy uh of the important cinema club podcast did an amazing steve wang interview which you can find on itunes which i highly recommend um uh, so you're right there, there's always hope and and i think that if you're fans of these things you have to have hope but even if there's not another guyver thing that comes along there, there will be things like psycho gorman and there will be other uh, other you know power interest shows and things to look forward to that ha have been influenced and have dna from this stuff so you, got, but you always got to keep your eyes open and look for these things that were clearly influenced by guyver and the people who made guyver because they're out there you're like, so the people who made these things went on to affect a lot of other things sometimes directly sometimes indirectly but even though even though guyver's cultural footprint as a property is not that strong its influence from a creative standpoint is immeasurable. And, and, and you couldn't ask for anything better for a movie that's so weird and unique to have, you know, it's, it's creative influence spread out for decades. I think that is a perfect point to end this episode on. Uh, I don't think I could improve upon that. <laughs> well, thank you. And, and you know, we, we are kind of, we, we did, we did break through. Well, I think we actually talked about this movie longer than the movie is. So, uh, I mean, that is kind of a a goal, uh, uh, <laughs> not a goal, but that seems to be a running theme. Um, if you know, we uh, we have done that a few times on this show, and ultimately, regardless of other people's opinions, that usually means that the people talking about the film had a lot to say. So I never have an issue with that. Um, we did kind of go off a, a, a 
into the weeds about other topics, but that's also part of the course. I think people genuinely enjoy that. And if you're listening to this and, oh, excuse me. I want to edit that out. (laughs) (laughs) If you're listening to this and you maybe don't know much about tokusatsu shows, which is the umbrella term for basically transforming superheroes, um, I wouldn't actually say to dive into it full, you know, like feet first, because Giver is, as Matt said, a rarity in its adult, violent portrayal of the genre. Most of them, especially these days, have a very kid-friendly atmosphere, but there are some that do break that mold, especially older ones. There was a point uh, where a lot of these shows seem to be heading for a much more mature audience. Um, Early 2000s, the 90s, the late 80s, there seemed to be this push to drive this genre into much darker territory. Another film that would pair... Well, actually, no, I I take it back. A film that would obliterate Guyver's dark tone is Kamen Rider Shin. And uh, if you've never seen that and you're a fan of this film, you would probably enjoy that. I don't know how hard it is to track down these days. It is a very similar premise to Guyver, but it was made by the Japanese team in a time when Kamen Rider was doing, well, was gone. There was no live action Kamen Rider in the 90s for a period of time. It came back in the 2000s, but they made some films and one of them was Shin and Shin was aimed at uh adults there it is not a film for kid shin is probably one of the most violent common writers ever and yeah guyver kills uh zoonoids by beheading them shin's opening transformation sequence if i remember correctly has him ripping people's spines out mortal combat style just for being near him when he transforms <laughs> like they're not even the bad guys they just happens to be in the area so uh yeah that would pair really well with this film, I think. <laughs> well, you know, I, I've not seen that one, and I'm going to track that one down. Uh, that sounds like my cup of tea. Yeah, genuinely, um, like I say, there were three films made in the 90s, and I'm trying to remember. One was Kamen Rider J, which I wouldn't bother with because that was more traditional. And then at the same time, they were making uh, Shin, and I th- I can't remember what the other one was because it was this weird name. It's irrelevant, but um, yeah, Shin is worth tracking down. It's not really linked to the story of the other Kamen Riders. It kind of was its own thing for a very long time. Then they kind of linked it, but not really. It was kind of like he appeared as like a cameo, but his canon is like not really there. So you can watch that and not worry a thing about the rest of the Riders. You know, it's fine. Well, and, and there's a there's a common writer film that's about one of the villains, isn't there? That's very dark. I'm trying to think of what the name of it is. Again, it's not my wheelhouse, so I'm I'm, I'm actually trying to look it up right now. Um, but there's one where it's kind of a post-apocalyptic film, and it focuses on one of the common writer villains. Honestly, and, uh, it's not springing to mind. But if it's a more modern film, I like I said, I'm very behind. Um, there's also, like I said, the modern common writers, especially. Their flirtation between the word villain and hero kind of gets on my nerves because one episode's villain is the next episode's hero, and that gets on my nerves. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. I've got, I've got what else to get up now. I, I may be completely off about its connection, but but it was it was 
It was Hakider, H-A-K-I-D-E-R. Yeah, Hakider is... Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) So, Hakida is a metal hero, which is the fourth (laughs) tokusatsu uh, genre that uh, doesn't really exist anymore. Uh, Um, I'm just revealing how little I know about the whole genre. Like I said, it's, it's never been my wheelhouse, so... No, to be honest, um, I, I I will not even pretend to say that I could have ever guessed that because I've never seen um, Hakaida or many of the metal heroes. The So, fun fact for those listening, and uh, perhaps for Matt as well, the original metal hero uh, is Space Sheriff uh, Gavin, and his design and his whole aesthetic is a intergalactic sheriff. The space sheriff, obviously, um, intergalactic police officer, and when he transforms, he has this really cool silver chrome look. And if you see him, you might go, "That kind of looks like Robocop." And there's a reason for that because it was the character that Robocop was based on. Aesthetically speaking, uh, Gavin is what created Robocop, not the story. The story has no similarity whatsoever, but. Yeah, Gavin gave birth to Robocop, which I think is always a nice little piece of cool information. Yeah, uh, I, I, I knew that a little bit. I, 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 I knew a little bit about Space Sheriff Gavin. Uh, but yeah, so like I said, I, I know so very little bit about Taku, and I appreciate you like educating me because that's, that's, one, that's one genre I've just never really known much about. So uh, I do appreciate the clarification, and that's one more tangent to kind of wrap up this episode, I guess. Yeah. Um, like I say, enjoy uh, Shin Kamen Rider or Kamen Rider Shin. Um, uh, let me know what you think about it. And uh, yeah, if you if you want to come back and talk about it, we can. But from memory, it's not one that's uh, I, I was planning on doing purely because I don't think. And again, it's been years since I've seen it that the um, action is going to hold up as well as uh, Guyver did. Because again, I think the intent was to be more of a like a horror type thing but you might tell me that i'm wrong and that there's loads of action i genuinely can't remember <laughs> well I, I would definitely watch it because i i do i do like weird cinema um but you never know i mean as far as coming back on the show you know i'll come back on the show whenever you want me to eventually you and i are going to talk about something that someone's going to actually want to watch like if we had ah! a boy so <laughs> that'll, that'll happen eventually and i and i mean no disrespect to anyone who likes who likes guy dark hero obviously i like guy dark hero a lot or no offense to anyone who liked the other movie we talked about that I obviously love, which is Master. But those are neither of these are what you would call mainstream films. And so uh, I appreciate you having me on to talk about these weird movies that I obviously care so much about. Because but they do. And, and they're so rarely do we get a chance to really have forums and platforms to talk about what makes these movies cool and interesting. So. You know, I'll come back on as much as you want me to to talk about whatever you want me to. But eventually, we got to talk about something that someone's actually heard of. Oh, we we can 100% do that. Anyway, thank you very much for coming on. And uh, that's going to be the end of this episode here for real this time. So thank you to my guest, Matt. Thank you to everybody listening. We hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I will leave you with myself for the outro to tell you what's going to happen next and fill in any blanks that need filling in. But we will catch you next time. Hello! There you go, folks. That was the conversation. You're now back with me in the present. Um, the thing I wanted to follow up on just briefly, aside from saying thank you to Matt once again for joining us, is that uh, somewhere in that long conversation, 
we mentioned the Shin films. Now, when we recorded this, they were an unknown entity. However, since recording this episode, Shin Ultraman has actually gone into the cinemas in Japan, and it has been getting rave reviews. Shin Kamen Rider actually has a trailer that you can go and watch. Um, it's It appears to basically be another reboot of the original Kamen Rider story. And I say another reboot because Kamen Rider the first was already a reboot of the original Kamen Rider story. And there seems to be a lot of overlap in the scenes that were in the first and the scenes that they have in the trailer. So I'm very, very curious to see what makes Shin Kamen Rider different. And also, I'm looking forward to the immense amount of people that are going to be confused between Shin Kamen Rider and Kamen Rider Shin. Because why they did that, I do not know. I also mentioned the fact that I had not seen Shin Godzilla. Those of you who follow me on Twitter will already know that I rectified that uh, not long after we recorded this episode, or maybe it was a while. Anyway, doesn't matter. Point is, I have seen it, and um, I didn't rate it as highly as other people did. Now, uh, I will stress that uh, the 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 review I put on Twitter was not meant to be my serious, like, this is what I think of the film. It was more of a, a, a funny take that I think a few people assumed I was being dead serious, which... Uh, how long have you guys known me? <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it wasn't what I wanted from a Godzilla film, but it, I, it's still a good film. It's just not what I was looking for. Um, it has some fantastic moments in it. My main complaints is, as I thought would be, I hate the fact that it's full CGI. Uh, there is no practical set effects in that at all. The Godzilla is completely CGI, and that... I really don't like it takes me out of it and you know we had this very conversation in this episode about I like the fact that they're live action they're in suits their practical effects continuing to get better and then Shin Godzilla went CGI and it's kind of like oh I already have a CGI Godzilla you know Hollywood's kind of doing that for me I don't need another one that has an even weirder chicken wing design but that's a rant for uh, probably a non-existent episode. Point is, I, I'm looking forward to seeing Shin Ultraman and Shin Kamen Rider. Um, I don't know exactly what the future holds for this type of entertainment. There are a lot of rumors going around that Super Sentai is coming to an end. There are also many rumors that say that Power Rangers is going to be drastically changing after its 30th year. And the 30th year anniversary is all over the place, I'm imagining, with recent news that I said at the beginning. So, yeah. Kamen Rider has been weird for a while now. And as I said, I'm not the biggest Ultraman guy, but the old stuff is still there if you want to check it out. Um, so I don't know what's going on with Tokusatsu. I, I honestly don't know if that type of entertainment has a future. If Japan is going to slowly start catching up with the West, with computer-generated imagery, with visual effects, like China appears to be trying to do, uh, I don't know how long 
live action special effects has. Um, it will be a shame if one of the last places that still genuinely does try to utilize it unfortunately follows the suit of everybody else, but it also won't be the biggest surprise. More and more anime are becoming 3D CGI, in which case they're not really that different from what's made over here. Either way, that's a topic for somebody else's podcast, or maybe, you know, I'll, I'll just write about it, I don't know. That said, guys, I thank you very much for getting to the end, and I hope you will rejoin me next week where we will be talking about another beloved film, and that is Navy Seals, and Andy Gorham, who did Batman with me last week, will be discussing that one with me, and for those of you paying attention, yes, this is the episode that we actually recorded before we did Batman, so, uh, yeah. Look forward to that one. Uh, Navy Seals was a lot of fun. I had never seen it, so this was a first-time watch for me. And for Andy, it was one that he had seen multiple times and enjoyed watching back in 1990 when it came out. So I hope you'll join us for that one. But until then, guys, stay safe, take care of yourselves, and I will see you all in the next one. On the